0: Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. We have turned the tables here on this one. I've been talking to Ed Ewing uh, over at Cross Country Magazine. I have a column for them, every other issue, and we were working on this month's uh, column and he was asking me about submitting a big article about the Alaska expedition with Dave Turner and I told him very honestly that I didn't really have my head around it yet and I didn't know what to write about. It's all just still, It's it's been a month since we got off the expedition and I still honestly I'm not conflicted about it. It was totally epic, but uh, I'm not really too sure where to take the story because it was just long and hard and wild and rad and uh, a lot of different things. And uh, carving it down into a readable format, I'm just finding tricky. So anyway, uh, Ed said, well, hey, why don't I interview you uh, on your podcast? And, uh, and I thought that was that might be a good way to talk about Alaska. So Ed and I connected via Skype, uh, had a great conversation, but I want to forewarn you that uh, this is long. We plan this at about an hour. Uh, but we just kept talking about what I think are really cool things. I think you 're going to enjoy it. But the first thirty minutes almost exactly are uh, Ed asked me a bunch of questions about you know growing up and ski racing and kayaking and climbing and all the things that kind of led to uh, this paragliding addiction so I have talked about those stories in one format or another on other podcasts if you 've already heard that stuff where you're getting bored you just want to hear about Alaska just fast forward to about minute 30 we start talking about the X alps there very briefly and then get right into Alaska so just fast forward get to where you're enjoying it uh, but stick with it I think it's worth uh, the full listen uh, once you get into Alaska we have some good laughs he has some great questions very honored to sit down with Ed uh, the editor of Cross Country Magazine so without further ado hope you enjoy it and uh, enjoy my conversation with Ed Ewing. thank you so much for doing this this is a great way to connect i think the last time you and i saw each other was in uh, Fuchsal mc the day after i got to monaco in the x alps and i'm pretty sure i was kind of blind with exhaustion so i don't remember that all that well but uh yeah it's great to have you on the show and it's really cool to put you in my position and and get some questions from you thank you for doing this i appreciate your time um
1: no i'm very happy to do it i was actually i was the idea came to me when I was watching you, your live tracking, when you were in Alaska. And I thought, how is he going to do a podcast about this? I must offer to uh, ask some questions. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be doing that.
0: Yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. And it was kind of funny when as soon as I got off that thing, people were just, they've been hammering away. And when are we going to hear more? When are we going to hear more? And. Uh, you and I were talking about, you know, doing a, an, an article for the magazine with this. And I still, you know, I ended on what the 17th, a little over a month ago, I don't really have my head around this thing. So it'll be good to actually just talk it out. I don't, I don't, I haven't written down one word other than a couple little Facebook posts and stuff. So yeah, this will be good. Maybe you can straighten my head out and we'll figure out what it all meant. (laughs) Okay,
1: cool. All right. Well, we'll dive right in. We've got an hour. Um, so When it came to sort of doing some research and looking at this and thinking about questions and stuff, I just wrote some things down on paper. I didn't really write any questions. I I wrote a few themes down. Um, And the first thing I've got there, um, I'm not going to dive into Alaska right away, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, So I'm going to find out about you a little bit more. Um, The first thing I've got here is Tahoe, right? You grew up in Tahoe. Is that correct?
0: yeah I grew up in the in the mountains in the Sierras actually yeah in the south end of Lake Tahoe on the nevada side a little up near a ski area called heavenly okay and a uh,
1: it, it, small place in a village or or in tahoe itself or
0: yeah they call it South Lake tahoe it's kind of near the casinos on the Nevada side, so it's like a really tiny tiny well this isn't really that accurate it probably throws people off unless they've been there but it's it's kind of like a little tiny Vegas but with mountains mm. all around it. So yeah, it's not it's it is really more of a town than a city. I think the population's like 30,000.
1: Um and what was it like growing up there? Because you've got this juxtaposition of big outdoors but also everyone's gambling, right?
0: Yeah, well yeah, it's kind of strange, you know, but as a kid you're not really Privy to all that, you know, I, I worked valet parking when I was 16, 17 in the summers to pay for my ski racing habit, you know, I I got really into ski racing when I was super young, I joined what were, at that time it was a little, a team called the Heavenly Valley Blue Angels, kind of a funny name, uh, but because uh, it was heavenly, and uh, so I was really serious into ski racing, so Um, I I did, you know, have contact with the casinos and that kind of stuff with work, you know, much later when I was, you know, trying to pay for this habit I developed. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was just a really cool place to grow up because it had the mountains and, of course, the lake. So I spent a lot of time just uh, in the mountains and in the water as a kid in the summer. And I think that's where my real passion for the outdoors uh, grew Kind of automatically. I don't know how it couldn't in a place like that. It was a cool place to grow up. It is quite transient because of the casinos. You know, I mean, I wouldn't want to live there now. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a great place. You know, I wasn't a paraglider back then. I didn't know anything about paragliding. But um, there's some really good cross country being done out there these days. And but for me, it was a great place to grow up because it had the skiing. You know, we live very close to Heavenly Valley, and in those days, it wasn't very expensive. And I, I was I was lucky to get sponsored quite early, so I could. Basically Basically, my mom just had to get me to the hill every day and and everything else was pretty taken care of. I just it was a great place to train and to kind of learn the discipline of of being an athlete, I guess. Mm. Um, And you you mentioned your mom there. Were
1: were your parents uh, sporty? Were they outdoors? I think your dad sailed.
0: Yeah, well, not until much, much later. My they both were though. Actually, my dad was a, a uh, played on the professional tour, uh, the golf tour, for a little while. He he played with you know Arnold Palmer and uh, the the Golden Bear, Jack Nicklaus, and some of those guys. He was a golf pro in in LA for quite a long time. Um, but yeah, my mom and dad got me into skiing when I think I was like eighteen months old. They had you know a pair of moon boots and plastic skis, and I would ski down between my mom's legs, and then. Uh, they both tell a lot of really funny stories of me uh, just kind of becoming obsessed with it. That's that's that tends to be how I operate when it comes to sport. But uh, yeah. in fact, my mom, I'm working on this book, you know, about the Alps. I have no idea when that'll be done. But um, in in the book, I talk about some of my you know kind of earliest memories. This is not one I remember, but my mom and dad. Uh, they divorced when I was six and my earliest members of them were, were screaming at one another, but they used to take me to this uh, mountain called North Star. And, you know, back in the day, it was just these, the chairlifts were like two seat chairlifts. And uh, and I had learned, I think I was about three at the time, so I was tiny, and what they'd have to do is one or one of them would have to pull into the lane, you know, these weren't like detachable quads that they have now, they come around quite fast, and one of them would pull into the lane with me and pick me up and put me in the seat, you know, and we'd go up and the other parent would be in the seat behind in the next chairlift, and you know, but I'd learned how all this worked, and I think they were distracted or fighting or something as they were coming up to this. So when the chair in front went, I went behind it, but neither one of them went. And of course the lift up, they were always stoned out of their gourds and not paying attention. <laughs> and so he didn't pick me up. And so the chair came around, cracked me in the back of the head, and I just basically reached out and grabbed the seat post or you know, the like the thing to keep you in on the side and, and went up. And so I was I was actually I wasn't seated, I was just hanging on to this thing chair. hanging by, onto the chair and my mom and dad were in the chair behind me they they got it together and got on the chair and i guess my mom was just screaming bloody murder the whole way up you know oh sweetheart don't let go don't let go <laughs> and, and i guess all that all i kept doing was just yelling back like mom i got it don't you know i'm fine or whatever whatever a 3 year old says at that stage but apparently i held on the whole way up and and uh you know dropped off when i got to the top but yeah they Back to the point, they both got me into skiing when I was really young. I, I can barely I could barely talk I think when I was on my first set of skis and and that was really my life until um, I made the. US ski team years and years later very briefly I was on it for about two weeks and destroyed my knees and, and that was pretty much it.
1: That was it. I mean I read that about you that you were on the team. Uh, that must have been huge. Disappointment, I suppose. You, all, how old were you? Like eighteen or something? Yeah, I
0: was seventeen. Um, it was actually, I blew out my knee the day the uh, Kuwait oil, uh, the the war broke out, the Gulf War, uh, January fifteenth, ninety one, I think. Uh, and and you know, it was at the time, yeah, completely devastating. That was my life, and I was shooting for the Olympics in ninety four, and it was just everything to me. Um, I had rehab, you know, I had surgery, rehab, came back the next year um, and, uh, and then blew it out again. I think one of the very first races and, uh, and that time was fully planning on rehabbing. you know, that's what we did back in the, I mean, we still do now. I think the racers, you just, that knees, or you blow out your knees and you fix them. Um, but the first one was, was really quite catastrophic. It wasn't just like an ACL. It was pretty much everything. And so when I went in to see the doc that time, the second time around, he did an MRI, um, he kind of sat me down and said, you know, Hey, I, I know you don't, you can't understand this because you're you're 18 and stupid and you think you're invincible. But um, you have the knees right now of a 40 year old, and and unless you know, unless technology radically changes in the next 10 years, when you're 30, you're barely going to be able to walk. And uh, and he said, you know, you can. I'll fix this for you, but you got to decide if you want to keep doing this. And so um, I, I quit. And, and, and actually that time quitting was, or that time, you know, ending skiing was, wasn't that big a deal. I I just never really looked back. It was kind of like, uh, the, the, it was kind of like opening the window and, and looking outside for the first time. Like my whole life had been so focused on this one thing, um, to end it because of an injury felt okay I guess it just it didn't feel like I was really quitting or that because I wasn't good enough or I hadn't trained hard enough I felt like I'd really given it my all and uh and and just everything else opened up uh all these things that I'd avoided school I mean I hadn't even gone to high school really uh and so I you know I I I went went off to college and um, discovered climbing and kayaking and um, all these other things that you know had just been really training for skiing up until that point. So um, it was really, in looking back, it was pretty fortuitous that 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 happened and it happened early. You know, a lot of the friends that I ski raced with got pretty heavy into drugs and alcohol. It can be a pretty hard transition. Um, and so you know well, to when go you from, come off it when yeah you when you or if you yeah. don 't make it or you know when that career ends, and so I think luckily for me, it ended early enough that I could kind of transition into things that were probably in the long run healthier I mean skiing racing wasn 't unhealthy, but it was pretty um, myopic, and so it was it was nice to just um, it just opened my world into other things which was which ended up being a really good thing um one of those things was kayaking right. Mm. Yeah.
1: Um, and, uh, you know, just reading your profile, there, it, it, you got into kayaking the same way you have got into everything, which is you end up you do it, you do it 100 percent and you end up doing it with the best guys in the sport and being extreme at it. But also you mentioned there that you had a bad experience that made you give up. Can you tell us about that?
0: Yeah. Um yeah, you you've you've put that together pretty well. I I my my kayaking were, career was short, uh, but very intense. I, I get really, really into it and really into kind of what we call creek boating, really steep rivers. Um and we were doing a bunch of first descents. I was with a guy named Tao Berman who went on to be a big time Red Bull kayaker, uh, another guy Brett, and we went down to for six months, we were down in, in Central America, mostly Mexico, and then later Honduras, Guatemala. Um, and, and the objective was to do some filming. And I mean, like this was back in the days of very basic filming uh, and um, and just paddle rivers that had never been paddled. And uh, – the. The short story of a long story is that, you know, when I left that summer, I was living in Vale, Colorado that summer, working uh, a ton to pay to go on this trip, to earn enough money to go on this trip. And so I wasn't paddling a lot. And when I linked up with Brett and Teo, they came down from Washington. Uh, state And we headed off on this journey. We right away got into running some really hard, you know, class five plus, even class six, which is considered unrunnable rivers. And I just, I, I wasn't paddling very well. And um, and rewind, when I left Vale that, that summer, I had this really, I'm not a spiritual guy yet. I have to admit that up front um, and not a religious guy. But I had this overwhelming sense that just this daily voice that hit every day that, you know, that just said over and over again, Gavin you're not coming home it was either you're not coming home or you're going to die it was really explicit and really spooky um, and i I didn't tell the other guys this and I just I figured it was just because I was kind of off my game and I wasn't paddling very well and I just needed to get back up to speed and be confident um, anyway months later three or four months later uh, we were trying to do this first descent uh, i don't even mem- remember the name of the river um it's in, it, do you remember the
1: name of the country yeah
0: it was in mexico it, was, it wasn't actually okay. too far out of mexico city um and we were it was like the t- i want to say it was a top tie but that's that's in washington that's not even it i, I can't remember the name of the, this river but um really hard uh, very pool droppy very sectiony um and the 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 drop that we we put into uh this is the day before kind of the quote-unquote the accident was was full-on class six it was just a sieve that ended in this nasty hole um really bad and tail was always the probe he was always the guy going first and and i just felt like okay i got to get this voice out of my head i'm going first and i remember him kind of like right before i dropped in just like hey are you sure dude (laughs) and uh anyway ran it halfway in went upside down snapped a paddle it was literally like three feet wide this thing the whole river just went into this lake sieve um and uh Ended up in this hole at the bottom, you know, just getting wash washing machine, but end over end, not like you typically do, kind of sideways. And the rocks were so sharp, and this thing was so deep, it just ended up shredding both ends of the boat. Uh, we, we each had one creek boat and one play boat for kind of more playful stuff. It just shredded the kayak. And eventually, once it shredded and filled up with water, it took me down deep, and I was able to, you know, get out of this hole. Um, that sounds scary, but it actually was fine. I was totally fine. I got to the side of the river. All my stuff was destroyed, but it was like, oh, you know, I feel good. And then the next day we put on the river right below this, that rapid, because that rapid was, was really bad. Um, and, uh, and so we put on the river the next day and we got down to a a rapid that these guys had run the day before. It was a small waterfall, no big deal. But this voice just came back in this very intense way. Gavin, you're going to die. Gavin, you're going to die. When you
1: say a voice, I have when you no say voice. idea you you what it is.
0: An actual an voice. An actual voice like in my head. My yeah, like yeah, exactly. It just Did you recognize no, that voice? No, not at all. I still to this day have no idea what it is. Uh, but it was just this, you know, loud and clear, Gavin, you are going to die. And, uh, and for the first time, I turned to my two buddies. We're sitting in this eddy above this waterfall. And I tell them, like, hey, you guys, this is like, I'm having this weird thing. It keeps coming. I'm kind of, you know i'm kind of laughing i'm trying to like make light of it and tail was just adamant dude you got to get off the river and brett was the opposite he said you know you it's just because you're not paddling well same kind of thing i've been i've been feeling he's like if you get off the river you might never get back on and uh and so they both said hey listen this drop's super easy why don't you just take this drop and uh and you know see how it goes. We'll both run it first. We'll set up safety on each side of the river down below, wait for our whistles, because once they go, you can't see them. This was quite steep terrain. And uh, so, okay, so we set up this whole thing. They go, but I'm in my playboat now. So I'm in in a kind of a much lower volume, much harder boat to, to kayak in kind of big volume, steep creeks. Um, And so the move off the end of this waterfall, it's not a big waterfall, it's like eight feet, um, was to really kind of boof and get air and clear the hole at the bottom. But I kind of blew it partly because I was in this wrong boat, but partly because I wasn't probably kayaking very well and partly because I was scared. And, uh, And I kind of blew it and ended up at the hole at the bottom of the waterfall. And they had both said it's pretty, you know, it's pretty grindy down there. If you get in it, it's probably gonna take you a while to get out. Um, Tao and I used to do all these like really hardcore breathing exercises, you know, so at the time I could hold my breath for like four and a half minutes. Um, and uh, and I, since you know later years I did a bunch of spearfishing and free diving and stuff so I I I have a decent breath hold anyway I'm in this thing and I'm just getting my ass kicked over and over and over and over and, and you know that kind of thing where every time I could kind of roll up at the bottom of the waterfall I just get hammered and get thrown back down so you know I'm, I'm I'm going through that whole stage of, okay, I'm out of air. Okay. A little bit of panic. Okay. I'm going to throw, I'm going to pull my skirt. We, we never liked pulling our skirt and swimming in these kind of rivers. That's even more dangerous, but eventually I'm out of air. It's the only option I have Pull my skirt, immediately get flushed to the bottom of the river, which is usually where you want to be. The current will take you, you know, down river and not, you'll get out of the kind of recirculating hole. Anyway, I, I got in this, flushed down to the bottom of the river and, and it was just completely black because it had been raining really hard. The river was totally brown with dirt. Couldn't see anything. And and I sh- it, my body stopped moving. I was like pinned to the bottom of the river. So, you know, I'd crawl forward and whack right into a wall and then kind of turn a little bit and crawl forward and whack right into a wall. And It's like, holy shit, have I been flushed into a cave? Um, anyway, this goes on for long enough, it's, it's way beyond the time where you kind of start panicking, you start kind of <laughs> like pulling in water. I've gone way beyond that. Um, and and now I'm just kind of stumped. And this voice <laughs> that I've been hearing, this sounds so crazy, but this voice goes, well, you're dead. Like, holy shit, you know, and it's like a two-way conversation. And then I go, hey, really? And go, yep, you're dead. And, and I just kind of, res, I just kind of resolved myself to it. And, I, and all this stuff kind of flashed through my mind. Like you hear about it, like, well, that really sucks. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I didn't have anything more profound than that. It was just, man, I'm, I'm 25 years old and my life is over. That That's terrible. And, uh, and, then, and then this kind of seemed like a long pause. It was probably half a second. And then, you know, and then this voice came back and said, but if you're not, will you listen to me? And I was like, "Hell yeah, I'll listen. Of course I'll listen." And uh and then I just started crawling like crazy, you know, and uh, just grabbing boulders. I don't know where this energy came from because I was basically dead. And uh and you know, eventually, of course, the the river caught me, this current caught me and I got flushed up. And the first thing I saw was Tao just standing there. They didn't even have their they'd gotten out of their kayaks when they saw me come over the top of the falls. Um, you know, and then they didn't see me exit, you know, at first you're like, ah, he's getting worked. That's what we always did. And then, oh my God, we better get up there and see what's going on. So they both get out of their kayaks on either side of the river. They go up and they're and they're waiting for a boat. They're waiting for a body, nothing, nothing, nothing. And he estimated later that there was nothing for over five minutes. So I was in the water a long time. And, uh, anyway, I came up, the first thing I saw was him. And I was kind of still in this recirculating hole. It was, it was bringing me back into the waterfall and I, he later told me that I gave him a lo- this look like, dude, if you don't get me, I'm dead. And he kind of scrambled down this cliff wall and grabbed my hand and pulled me up out of the river. Um, and then I guess I had what, was, what would be kind of like a nervous breakdown. I just kind of lost it and just started scratching my head and crying. And, um, and I, you know, I've kayaked since then. It, you know, I did the Grand Canyon and some really nice river trips that I would call, you know, very nice class three, class four nothing real major, but I couldn't kayak after that day. Um, I did get back on the river right below that drop and swam a couple more times. And uh, I just, it was never the same kind of fun. Um, it, it, you know, I, I still consider myself a kayaker, but um, certainly I don't, I don't get after it. And it was just, it just took, it just, I, guess, I guess it was just obvious that um, I, I, I couldn't seem to enjoy when things were just mellow. You know, and just three, class three, class four, like I needed it to be full on Gnar or I wasn't having any fun. And, and yet I could see the writing on the wall was that I, I, that was the first time that I was kind of came face to face with death it was just like, God, dying would suck. Life is amazing. Um, let's not do this anymore. That's yeah. that's awesome. um, Gavin,
1: the hairs on my arms are standing straight up. That's an amazing story. Yeah,
0: it was. Um, it's one of those great ones—not the story, but it was one of those great life lessons where, you know, we've had so many friends. I had Jeff Shapiro on the show earlier this year. Um, he's lost so many friends to base jumping and wingsuit yeah, yeah. And flying. And it was one of those ones where, luckily, in that case, there was just enough margin. And I, you know, I just, it just—it made me realize. Um, that I don't want to be a Facebook post. I don't want to be a statistic. Although Facebook didn't exist back then, but yeah, Yeah, it was really, it was really instrumental. I got super lucky. You know, one comes out of the luck jar. I think I wrote about that for the magazine one time and just, I, one comes out of the luck jar.
1: Um, I'm sort of with you on being underwater thing. When I was 25, I had nothing like that, but I was in a car that went upside down and into a canal and sank to the bottom of the canal at the at the end of the night and it was sort of dark like that with mud and i remember thinking exactly the same thing Uh, you know i saw my uh the little clip in the in the newspaper you know four people died in spain one was 25 and i remember thinking exactly the same thing oh this sucks yeah
0: guys well that's we we do get out of some lucky stuff i mean (laughs) i guess i guess the uh That was kind of the over, not to get advanced too far on where you're leading us down the road to to Alaska, but that was actually the big, that was the thing I was thinking about a lot in Alaska was that, you know, when you have those kinds of um, vistas and landscapes, you realize how insignificant and how, you know, meaningless it all is in in terms of your own life like Alaska doesn't care at all that Dave and I went across it it'll it'll it has been there forever and it'll be there forever I mean in some in some way and and you know I think it just it's a radical reduction in status anxiety when you do stuff like that because you realize that you know we come in with nothing and we go out with nothing but man I'd like to go out a little bit later than early <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. yeah yeah because it's fun i mean life is well amazing. i
1: suppose um i mean that that brings us straight on to 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 sailing really and i don't want to go too much into the sailing because i know you spent 12 years there or, or 13 years sailing around the world um but that's the same sort of thing i mean the sea doesn't care that you're there right but yeah. you must have seen amazing things and done amazing things and, and if people want they can find out all about that it's all over the web but um is there one thing you can take from that experience and say this was the best thing about it, whether that be a sort of geographical thing you saw or an emotional thing you experienced or
0: I mean the ov- the overall thing that I love about sailing is that it just makes you feel really small it's it's a very humbling activity because um, you can't you have to rely on the boat and yourself you can't just go oh! I need to stop and get that fixed uh, you know you're it's really committing and so I, I I like I like that I like that the the ocean I actually got more scared and more nervous about sailing every year I was out there It was this really funny thing in the beginning ignorance is bliss um, and storms are really fascinating um, and then as you get more experience you get of course better at, at at handling all that stuff but at the same time you get more racked by the the just the immensity and the power of the ocean and how fast it can change not unlike paragliding, I guess but mm. but it's um, yeah I mean in terms of one thing I guess because we're talking about flying um, still the standout for for me was uh, flying that dune in Mozambique and um, I think most people have seen that but we made a little short film about it called the Dune Discovery it was this a massive 20 mile island it makes Dune de Pila seem tiny um, and it's all just a massive sand dune 400 feet high um you can fly the whole thing uh conditions can be a little bit tricky to make it work but um we spent i think a month there one time and we sailed back across to madagascar and came back later in the season and spent another i think two months there flew it almost every day and uh just you know i was i was hardly a pilot back then I, you know i didn't know hardly anything about cross country i was very much just learning um but uh I, that was pretty neat, just that, you know, coming, sailing across from Madagascar and coming into the, that was the first, literally the first thing we saw when we came across uh, the the Mozambique channel um, was this just huge dune and realizing like, oh my God, I think we can fly that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and then, you know, we got stranded one day we were flying, we were all flying and I'd anchored the, there was huge tides there, like 18 foot tides. And there was this kind of outer barrier reef that would protect uh, it would protect the, the island to an extent, but the, when, the, when, the, when the tide would come up, it would come over that reef, and if there was a big swell running, which there often was in the Indian Ocean, um, it would come crashing into the beach. Well, earlier that day, I had anchored our dinghy offshore quite a ways and swam in. We dropped all our stuff and all the people off earlier, and then I anchored this thing out, and then we were flying – all day. The conditions were perfect. And so we were quite a ways down from where the the dinghy was. And, you know, at the end of the day, kind of flying back, realized like, oh my God, where's the dinghy? It's not anchored out there. Well, it had broken off the anchor in this huge swell and come in through the swell and beached itself um, and just gotten pretty much destroyed. You know, the engine was mangled. And and so we had to spend the night. We just used one of the tandems and there's eight of us. We, you know, wrapped up into the tandem and we had no water and food, of course. That was no big deal because we only had to survive for the night, but, you know, pretty sandy, dry cotton mouths and, uh, just the whole experience of it was, was, was really exceptional. And getting back to the boat the next day was, of course, interesting. And, uh, but you know, I, I think that whole kind of, uh, just that, I think that's why sailing was always so attractive to me and why it, it drew me so much was just that kind of, it just seemed like the great unknown and unexplored. And of course, these days, um, you know, most people, I mean, the, the world is not unknown. People have sailed everywhere, but that you could still go and do stuff like that and, and, and do something that no one had ever done before was yeah. yeah, really appealing.
1: Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? Cause it's only 10 years ago. was not, if you'd done that, you know, yesterday, it would be on Facebook now mm. and everyone would have seen it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, so 2006, you got into flying. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So 10 years ago. Um, And I've heard you say before that it is like no other sport that you've ever done and it grips you like no other sport has ever done. Is that right
0: yeah it's kind of it 's kind of funny, Maybe people have heard this before, but actually it was when I met Jody uh, my, my partner for ten years and still my my business partner um, it, you know we're still very very good friends um, so she she was a pilot when we met in, in two thousand late two thousand and three, and then so two thousand and four we were down in New Zealand, I was getting the boat ready for another season uh, up in the South Pacific, and she kind of taught me how to grand handle and ground handle and, and huck me off a couple of really tiny little hills. Um, but I never, you know, I never got certified. I never really actually learned how to fly until a couple years later, we were, you know, we were done with that boat. And we were dreaming about this next big boat project and, uh, and back in Seattle, Washington, and I went through the school and got my license. And so that's when I kind of really learned how to fly, like you said, in 2006. Um, but in the beginning, uh, you know, I, I think I took a couple of tandems, uh, you know, when, when we got back to Seattle that, that summer and I thought, God, this is boring as that shit. like it, it just I mean it was really fun flying off the hill and then immediately I was like god is this it and uh and the the second guy I did the tandem with um his name was Abby really remarkable pilot and he's down in New Zealand these days um and, and, he, and he could tell he could sense that I was kind of bored and so he started kind of throwing it around and then I was like yeah okay now I like this we started doing some sats and he did a couple loops and and uh so then I was like yes okay that that's awesome but I still had no concept of cross-country or what could be done on them. I'd actually avoided it for 10 years because I kept hearing about people. I had a really good friend that was super into it at Tiger Mountain in Seattle and and uh, and he just always would beg me to get into it and and I kept hearing about all the accidents and I kept hearing that, you know, it wasn't the gear, it was bad decisions and and I was the master of bad decisions and, and I, you know, I, and I had been really gripped with 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 sports that weren't exactly safe, you know, like downhill ski racing and, and, and big wall climbing and kayaking. And so I just thought, "Ah, this is not a good sport for me. I got to learn how to be mellower before I I take this on. But anyway, these tandems I took were were really boring. Um, And and yet the acro thing was, was kind of uh, attractive. But then when I took the controls for the first time and actually flew off a mountain, yeah, I was, hooked and, I, and i've been hooked ever since i mean it, usually these sports that i get into i just go mad crazy. that's all i do i get completely focused on it and 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 addicted and then two years later i'm kind of like i mean i'm not, certainly not the best i could certainly get a lot better um but i i kind of get like uh, I've, I've maxed out my own ability here and then i get bored with it mm-hmm. and paragliding just hasn't it hasn't been that way for me at all yeah like you said it's 10 years in and I'm still just blown away by the absurdity as much in the beginning as I, I'm, I'm still blown away now as much by the absurdity of all it, it, of it all that I wasn't in the beginning it's still just totally absurd to me I still can't believe it works do you think still that you're the master of bad decision making no I think I'm better I'm 44 now so I think maybe like last year I got better no i don't (laughs) yeah after clearly good god uh but no i'm doing the x-ops again so no i think i've still got a long way to go um no i mean i think i think i'm learning i mean i think i'm trying to be better luckily i've been i'm luckily surrounded by people who are way better pilots than i am and they're um and they're they're great mentors, you know, guys like Nick Grease and Matt Beechner and um, Will Gad, you know, doing the Rockies Traverse with him taught me a lot. And I, I'm really trying to be a lot more mindful about maintaining a margin because I, I think that's what's cool about our sport is that we can, you know, we can do yeah. really rambunctious, wild adventures, like what Dave and I just did in Alaska, but we can maintain a margin. We don't have to get hurt in this sport. And I dig that, you know, I, I think that that's the big difference um, between human, you know, between hang gliding and paragliding and, and wingsuit base jumping. Those guys don't have a margin. Um, and and that's what makes me nervous about that. You mentioned that, let's talk briefly about the X-Alps. Um, can you sum that up for me
1: that whole experience in in a couple of lines
0: yeah god i i think i can um you know i was just in europe uh training with my team with bruce and ben and uh, the more i think about the x alps i mean it's a lot of things and there's a lot to process certainly after that race but the thing that i keep coming back to is that um it's those guys. It's your team. That, that's what to me was the most fun. And the reason I really, you know, during the race, um, even when we were getting our asses kicked, you know, I had a great start. And then I had a couple of really bad days. And even those days, it was like, you know, hiking up to launch with Ben. I just couldn't stop talking about doing it again. We were already planning the next one because I just, I I was surprised how fun it was. I, I was, I always thought it would be just miserable. I thought it would be a suffer fest. And so I trained really hard physically preparing for this miserable suffer fest. I'm glad I did all that training because it is really physical. It is really tough. But I think when you're prepared for it and you've got a great team that does things like feed you cat food, uh, <laughs> you know, and and uh, calls you a pussy and tells you to get out the door. It's a blast. And, and those guys, and I, I heard from a lot of other people in the race, you know, maybe they didn't have that kind of team, I don't know, dynamic. And maybe then that's not as fun but um for whatever reason, those guys work and and we have a great combination and i 'm a i 'm a complete idiot, especially when i 'm tired, so I need people to make decisions for me uh, on that level and those guys were you know Ben was in the army i mean he he doesn 't forget stuff he doesn 't forget to put things in my bag, I forget to put stuff in my bag every time I go up when i 'm on my own, but you know he he they they were just really on top of it they really made they got along really well together. Every time we were back together as a team, you know, when I'd be done at the day or walking along with them or something, it was a nonstop riot. And so I guess that's what I loved about it. The, the flip side of it was um, when I got into Monaco, talking to... Uh, we all sat around that night and had a couple beers and I actually took quite a bit of really heavy duty painkillers for my feet. So I'm sure I was pretty out of it. I think I took a bunch bunch of oxycodone that night. So I was out of my mind, but, um, you know, sitting down with Paul Gushelbauer and Aaron Dergati and Petio and who else was there? Ferdinand, Van Shelvin, all the guys that had come in before me, um, Everybody had really scary stories mm. and, uh, you know, like near-death kind of stories. And so when I went to bed that night, I definitely was not on the high that I was when I got to Monaco. I was kind of like, God, is this worth it? How, how quickly did you change your mind?
1: Because, I, saw, I mean, that night you drove back to Fushel. I yeah. saw you the next yeah and you were like no i'm not doing this
0: yeah exactly I I w- yeah you're you're right i'm glad you reminded me of that it was i would have said it was the next morning when we left but it wasn't really until the morning after i saw you um it wasn't long kind of 24 hours 48 hours afterwards all that kind of i just thought you know what it, this is just a matter this can be done safely it's a matter of training i guess i gotta train harder i gotta do more acro um and i've gotta be mindful i mean we we Definitely went into it with the mindset that hey, this is supposed to be fun. Like, don't kill yourself to be to get in a better position. Like, th- this is that would not be fun, and that would be the yep. end of the race. So we definitely had that as a mindset. But even when you have that in a mi- as a mindset, man, you get in some weird places in that race. I think everybody has an adventure like that that's signed up for that thing, and um, you know, you I, I just. I still believe you can make good calls, but there are times when that race forces you to make some pretty stupid calls. And and I know that that will be the case going into the next one. And so I guess my strategy um, hasn't changed other than I just need to be better prepared. I need to be a better pilot because you can't really win that race unless you pilot on bad days.
1: Um and it's so it's going to be the same team next year.
0: Yeah, yeah, as long as those guys are into it, you know, it sounds like they really are. They're they're pretty fired up. Um Bruce is calling it his swan song. He he uh he used to chase it even harder than I did. I mean, he you know, I think he won the chocolate bar on X contest like 3 years in a row. Um he got in a pretty bad accident that he was lucky to walk away from in the sass doing a big triangle from fish a couple years ago and it kind of threw his Um, it threw something off in his head. He's had a really hard time with dizziness. Uh, he got really lucky, but it did really change how he approaches flying. So, um, in some ways it's good. He's, he's really into being a support role for the X-Alps, but he's still, he's so good at weather and he's so good at, at kind of the strategy. And so he's really my, he's my air guy and Ben's my ground guy and they make a really good team. All right. Well, I'm a little conscious of time. So let's skip
1: forward to Alaska. For those of us who live in tiny Europe, can you tell us how big Alaska is?
0: Oh, God, I can't. You know, I was We laughed about that a lot um, when we were in the Alps. And Dave and I were laughing one day that somebody put up a post about doing this really deep line in the Alps. And we were both just giggling like okay, there are no deep lines in the Alps, that doesn't exist, you bust over any coal, and there's a village, there's a town, there's a bus stop, there's a, you know, there's a lift, um, they're all covered in grass, um, yeah, I, I've i spent a lot of time in Alaska, I, I commercial fished up there when I was in my late teens at the end of the Aleutian Peninsula, and so uh, David had never been to Alaska, so I think for him it was more like, whoa, but that woe factor of Alaska never leaves, you know, it, it took 37 days to get across the range. Um, every day I was just like, God, the immensity of it. I wish there were other words. I, I don't know words other than massive and immense that describe it. I think it's, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, we were, for a, for a good section of it, we were more than hundred miles um, from the nearest road. And by the nearest road, I mean a dirt road um i mean that's kind of hard to get your head around it, it's just it's just huge it really is uh you massive. Know, they, they call it the last frontier and you know everybody gets around by super cub airplane because there are no roads and it's just massive i mean getting across you know one day after we landed in, in denali uh, in the national park we couldn't relaunch uh once we were in the park so we we had to walk out and, you know, getting across the Muldrow Glac- Glacier. I mean, take the Alex Glacier, you know, the largest in Europe and, and multiply it by 50. Mm. You know, that's the size of this stuff. It's just huge. Everything is just so big. <laughs>
1: so, and, and it's
0: empty as well, isn't it? I mean, it, totally empty. Let's, let's
1: go over the, the, the bullet point uh, numbers. How long was your trip? 37 days, how many kilometers? 37 point? days,
0: it was about 750 uh, kilometers, which is just insane. I mean, if you can add that. I mean, in the beginning, the first three weeks, there were days, well, there were a lot of days where we went nowhere. Um, but there were a lot of days where we were making like a mile and a half to two miles a day. And that's, you know, Dave's not a slow person, and we've both been in the ex-Alps. He, he and I know how to move. but. You know, the, the, the going was really slow. That was either because of alder bashing or uh, post-holing or just just really vicious terrain. Um, once we got around to the North Slope, the going was a lot faster. But to really call it a true, true traverse, we had to start right at the edge of Lake Clark National Park, which is kind of the southwest end of the range. The range is kind of shaped like a half moon.
1: Can we go, yeah, I was going to say, can we go back uh, one step? What's the range called? It's it, the Alaska, Alaska range. range, yep. The Alaskan Range. And how high is it?
0: The high, the highest is is Denali uh, or Mount McKinley. Everybody mostly calls it Denali. Um, twenty thousand three hundred and twenty feet. So that's the highest peak in North America. And you went from south to north. No, we went from west to east. West to east. Yeah, to east. and so it, the the line's kind of interesting. We'll we'll have to talk about that. But the, back to your back to your statistics. It's it was seven hundred and fifty kilometers from one end to the other. So just just shy of five hundred miles, like four hundred and seventy miles or something. Um, and the, the one extreme end is basically right at the, the northern border of Lake Clark National Park. From there west, it's the Aleutian Range. And at the other extreme end is, is is divided by a road that goes through at Metasta Lake, um, and to the east is the Saint Elias Rangel Range, which is another massive mountain range in Alaska. And to the left or the uh, the west side is the Alaskan Range. The Alaskan Range is kind of it's the it's the largest in Alaska, and it's the kind of most well known um, because of Denali. So in in Denali National Park, you have some of the most famous kind of alpine ascents really in the world, uh, Denali, Forker, Hunter, um, you know, these are big glaciated, big ass mountains. And
1: how much, how many people live in that 750 kilometers west to east?
0: I. Uh, good God. I, I mean, uh, there's only one village. Um,
1: there's one village in the whole 750 K. Yeah.
0: There's one, you know, there's a couple cabins on the way. There's some hunting, hunting camps. Like we, it's completely we, empty.
1: Is it where the guy went up, um, and and died in the bus out of the pool. Yeah, the
0: he was actually in that zone. Um there's there's a so there's I want to make sure I'm really accurate here so people don't get the wrong idea. There's two roads that go from south to north through the range. So imagine the range like a big half moon from west to east, the the half moon arcs to the north. There's two two roads that go south to north through it. So on those roads, there's a couple little, I would call them villages. They're not towns. Like there's one called Paxson, population zero. Um, There's another one called Cantwell that probably has... Um, a couple thousand people. And then there's Denali National Park and, and right outside the park, so in the park is the, the ranger station and right outside the park, there's a couple little towns. So there are, it depends on, on but those are north of the range or south of the range. Like actually in the range, there's very little, there's this little um Carlo Creek was this little place that had like a pizza place and a, a couple little lodges. That's where people post up, the tourists post up to go into Denali National Park. So there are signs of habitation on those two roads that that cut through the range, but actually in the range... Um, it's pretty uninhabitable. There's, you know, like I said, like one day we flew, we, we took off this one night like uh, after midnight to just fly across this, you know, it never gets dark so you can kind of move whenever you want across this river, Dillinger River. And there's tons of little airstrips, not tons, but there's, you know, over a dozen little airstrips out there. Um, these are just dirt airstrips that bush pilots use to put in hunters um, at various times of the year to hunt either bear or moose or elk or whatever. Um, and, and so we flew across this airstrip and we were totally completely out of food at that point we were still 30 miles away from our cache so the next morning we walked over there and, and sure enough there were some people there in a little cabin and it was a bear hunting camp um, and so there are that kind you know there you know but that guy lives in denver and he goes up there every spring for a month and and guides bear hunters um, mm. so there's not really any permanent um, yeah. stations or villages other than these few little places along those two roads, which we traversed you know, we went, not traversed. Uh, we went, we flew across those, uh, you know, at two different points in the sure. trip. Sure. Um, so how did you get to where you started? Uh, we, we were flown in by bush plane. So uh, Kenny, who's Jody's brother, it lives in Willow, which is kind of central on the south side of the range, basically south of Denali. And so we were base camp was basically his house to start off. We spent about 10 days there doing a lot of the logistics. So all the food packing, and then from there we put in the food caches. So we flew in the food caches in advance, it kind of pre-selected spots that we thought would work, which ended up not working at all. But then we, (laughs) and then, and then when we decided, okay, we've got a weather window, he went in and flew us into our, our designated start point, which was basically right at the Northern border of Lake Clark national park. Park, um, at the south end of a river called the stony river what was
1: your first day like what did you <laughs> do on your first day
0: the first day was wicked god it was cool and uh, I was, of course, nervous as hell. You know, we had a film crew on this. This was another Red Bull production. It was the same guys that did the uh, the Rocky Mountain Traverse that I did with Will Gad back in 2014. Um, much slimmed down crew. We had a lot less budget on this one, so they had to really slim things down. But we, um, so we, they flew us in with the Super Cub, Super Cub, Dave and I, to this Stony River. Um, it took us about four and a half hours, maybe five hours, to get up to the launch. Um, which was, you know, 2,000 feet. So that gives you an idea how slow <laughs> yeah. uh, getting up to these things was. It was just miserable alder bashing. Um, and I what is, was
1: what is alder bashing. I read that. Uh, yeah,
0: that... alders are this trees. These trees that exist. You can think of them like a 20 foot bush. Uh, that if you know, I, I think I said in the movie at one point that if an, if a genie kind of could have come out of a bottle on this thing at any one time and gone, Gavin, you get one wish. I mean, more than like world peace or like <laughs> or like anything that actually meant something, I would have said, okay, no more alders are allowed on the planet. You know, like yeah. I, I I like mosquitoes better than I like alders. After this thing, they're just they're this miserable plant that lit a tree really that lives in this certain zone between the river bottom and launch (laughs) in Alaska once we got to the north slope the north slope is which was really our goal um you know that's you have to imagine the the Alaska range on the south side is really maritime it's very close to the ocean and so on the south side really low cloud base and very very jungle-esque on the north side so that but the range because it's so massive it it, it's like the east side west side of the cascade it's like any major mountain range it just stops all that moisture on the on moisture on the south side so the north side is very much more desert and so that was our goal we had to get to the north side because that's where the higher cloud bases we knew the we knew that the flying would be better there and also the travel you're really more on tundra then instead of in jungle anyway back to the beginning we're we're on the south side still it took us three weeks to get from the south side to the north side which is only 100 miles wait um, stop
1: Stop, stop. Yep. It took you three weeks to get from the south side to the north side.
0: Yeah, it might have not even been 100 miles, maybe 60 why, miles. Why didn't you just fly to the north side in your you,
1: supercar?
0: Oh, well, because then it wouldn't have been a full traverse of the range. Okay. <laughs> we would have chopped off a big chunk of it. And so we really wanted this to be truly one end to the other, to the other. a full okay. traverse. So um, it's an
1: aesthetic line, basically. Yeah, exactly.
0: It's the, it's aesthetic, aesthetically, not just the easy, easy part. Um, yeah. But there were so many experimental things. And I mean, no one had flown in there at all, number one. But this whole like north side uh, premise, I I didn't actually know if that would work. All I'd ever done was in 2012 and then in 2014 flown through a pass from the south side and the north side in the Super Cub and noticed that we were really getting rocked around. You know, noticed Mm. that it was actually thermic. But I, no one had ever, that I know of, had ever flown out there. And so I didn't really actually know if it would work. So back to the first day, you know, this six years of dreaming about this and talking this Red Bull film crew to go in there and film it. I didn't actually know at all if it would work. I had no idea if this was, you know, I didn't know if we were just going to launch and fly right back down to where we'd started and just walk across Alaska or if we were yeah. actually going to be able to fly it. So, we, if we finally got up to this launch, bluebird day, cumulus clouds, it looks perfect. The only thing that wasn't perfect it was extremely cross and really dicey both dave and i probably had two of the dicier launches we've ever had um that'll be really exciting because it was on film um and then we flew 20 glorious kilometers which i know that sounds pathetic but it was just like such an exciting flight the heli ship with the cineflex was flying around us and these massive peaks and all glaciated and huge hanging seracs and I thought we were going to be able to fly right over Sled Pass, which was kind of our first real hazard and uh, roadblock, I guess. If you can put it, is a huge pass covered in snow. Um, we knew it would be really tricky on the ground. And so it looked like we were going to be able to fly over it. And as we were getting to this pass, so we're going, this is one of the strange things about Alaska is, Everything that you've learned in paragliding that works everywhere else, like, you know, rising terrain, valley wind should be going up, right? They go from down, okay. they go up the river. They don't go down the river. Um, and this was early in the day. It wasn't like it was catabatic, It was totally on. We just ran into a wall of, like, valley wind coming the wrong way. And so we just did this kind of mower move and side hill landed in the snow and thinking that, oh, well, this is just a weird Middle of the day thing, and we'll wait it out. Well, three hours later, it was still blowing really hard into our nose, and so we just sled it down to the valley and ended up having to walk over this sled pass, which was four miles. It took two and a half days. It <clears throat> just postholing hell. I mean, like like hell. I mean, Dave is a huge guy, and he would just you know you'd take two steps and you'd be up to your tits in this snow. It was just really tough um, going. <laughs> that that um that that wind.
1: Was that coming from the ice then, from glaciers? or I still don't know. No, I think
0: it was meteorological. I think it was meteor wind that was yeah. coming from the north. Um, this was a really curious thing. So, you know, we were at kind of 60 to 62 degrees north. And, you know, I'd been watching the weather up there as best I could for like, Three years, you know, I, I I downloaded all this data from a bunch of the. There's all these airstrips that are way north of the range or way south. There's not not actually any that are actually in the mountains, but you know, I was I kind of like interpolated that it still seemed to make sense to go from west to east. You know, our minds as paragliders, because we all fly like in the Alps or in the Rockies, we, we typically go west to east. You know, the, we typically are dealing with the jet stream. And so I really thought like that would be the way to go. Would, would, I, I mean, it did occur to me that maybe I should go east to west, but it did seem like we should go west to east. But the first three weeks of the trip, when we had wind, it was always really strong northeast. I still can't explain that. So we were we were totally going. So when it was flyable, which it rarely was, because it was either just too windy, too rainy, too snowy, whatever. Um, but when it was flyable, it was right on the nose. And so we were like, I started feeling really stupid. I thought, Jesus, Dave, I'm sorry, man. I, I think I've chosen the wrong way to go across this range, you know. And
1: like the exos. Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly. And I I still don't know the answer to that. Um, I, I don't know that we, you know, in the end. You know, once once Dave left, um, he, you know he had to bail. I think day thirty or day thirty-two. You know, we'd only covered like fifty-five or sixty percent of the range at that point. And then I got some really sunny, big, popping days, and I had a tailwind. And I mean, it, I mean, it, and it seemed to be well, kind of crosswind, but it was, it was. I mean, it was, it was pretty full-on flying, but. You know, at the in the end, the the wind seemed to be going the way that I anticipated it would going. So I don't know if that was a seasonal thing. I, I still don't really know the answer to that. Yeah. But for sure, the premise, you know, the experimental side of this thing was that, you know, the north side's going to work. That was totally right. You know, going across Denali and everything that was the way to do it. If I went back, I'd do it the same thing again. I just, we just started, I think too early. And that was, that was tricky to nail because he had a film crew. He had to make the call on it. But, but then in the end, you know, once I crossed Denali, I started on the north, switched to the south because we had a much, yeah, can I,
1: sure. Can you, hang on a second. Um, where is Denali in that, in this 750 kilometer arc? It's just about in the middle,
0: right. maybe about 40% of the way through. Um, it's, and how much of that is Denali National Park? Uh, 200K. <laughs> Huge. Well, across,
1: across. So you have to yeah, cross 200K of y- Denali
0: National Park. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was the big chunk. And that was really the tricky. That was, that so was you're always. You're not the, allowed to fly in the National park You can't sort of fly park. in the National Park. Yeah. You can't launch or land in the National Park. Um, and so we were completely honest with the National Park way in, months in advance. We, we let them know, hey, we're coming up to do this. We're going to have a film crew. Um, You know, we totally think as pilots that this can be done, but a number of things could happen. What we're going to do is we picked out this place called Heart Mountain that was right on the edge of the park where we would put in a food cache in advance. And basically we told them, listen, we're going to sit there until we get a perfect day to to make this happen. Um, And so the plan was to
1: fly 200K across yep. Denali Park in a day, across Denali, block, 18,000 feet,
0: bang. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> sounds, sounds pretty ludicrous, doesn't it? But, that sounds like
1: a good, positive plan.
0: Well, okay. the, the, the idea, too, was that we didn't necessarily need the perfect day because on the north slope, it looked like you would get this kind of valley wind every day that would you know, make sense, right? From there to the Brooks Range, which is 2,000 miles north of there, it's basically flat and desert. I mean, it, this is not the kind of desert you and I think of. It's like tundra desert. It's green desert, but it's it's a high plateau desert. It's not not even high. It's actually quite low. And then you have these massive mountains that go to 20,000 plus feet. So, you know, those heat up, they get anabatic. they pull in all that wind from the north. So really, I thought, you know, we could probably combination ridge soar and thermal across what ended up being like, you know, over a dozen glaciers, an uncountable number of rivers. I mean, this is really gnarly terrain. And so, mm-hmm. in in retrospect, maybe that was a bit ambitious, but I still I still think it can be done. Um, with the day that we ended up trying to do it, we were we were camped on Heart Mountain for eight days, basically in snowstorms, totally unflyable. Uh, it was really getting to the point where Dave had to leave, and so we had to try it on a day where I I almost. I didn't want to launch. I was like, Dave, there is no chance in hell this is going to work. I wanted to go back to our tent and wait for a better day. But he had to go. That morning was Bluebird. By the time we launched, it was completely like almost completely clouded out. There were rainstorms coming off the flats. It looked like a terrible day and we ended up flying like I think I flew 55 miles. He and I took very different lines. We got separated early on. I got really low. I mean, we flew like 10k in the beginning without getting a single blip on our on our varios. Like, holy shit, we're going to have to walk across the entire but we're going to fly 10k and have to walk 190k across this park. Um in the end we we got actually got pretty decent flights on days that were it looked terrible. And that was the weird thing about Alaska. I never actually did figure it out. When it looked great, it was terrible. When it looked terrible, it was on. Um, the weather just like thermals, the, the, the angle of the sun, the sun never really goes down. It just kind of goes around you. That never right. seemed to matter. You know, like the whole perpendicular thing. It just didn't seem to, when it was on the south, it would work on the north. When it was on the north, it would work on the south. It was just really bizarre. Um, But anyway, we flew 55 miles on a really marginal day. So, you know, almost 100K. Um, So I still totally think it can be done. We just tried to do it on a bad day. And so then as soon as we landed, we called the park, told them we had to make an emergency landing, which was actually pretty true. It was really dicey. We basically both got forced to the ground. And then we hiked the rest of the way. We hiked out of the park. Um, and then and that's to the road at that town I was telling you about, Cantwell. Um, that's where Dave had to leave. Um, that walking was okay. at times miserable, you know, like across the Muldrow Glacier. He had to cross a bunch of rivers that were really pretty dicey. Um, and then at other times on, it was pretty on nice.
1: On. Yeah. Let's, it, it,
0: there's so much stuff coming out. I'm, <laughs> I'm
1: losing my thread. Um, we've, we've, we've covered a month, but we've only done the first day and that flight. So I want to go back now if you don't mind to we've done you, you've got over the uh the 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 sledge pass okay you did your first day when you got 20k then you had to walk two days Post holding up through
0: the, the. Why did you go in May when it was still snowing? Was there a reason? Yeah, that that was that's a that's a good one, and I, a lot of people have been really curious about that. Basically, it's because in July, usually you know, give or take around the first of July in Alaska, um, things get really moist. Uh, it starts getting a lot warmer, of course, but it also gets, uh, I don't know, it's almost like foggy on the south side. Yeah. So the 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 cloud base comes down really low. It gets very rainy, wet really mosquito-y, very, very, very buggy. Um, and so kind of the money months up there to do anything, you know, skiing, turns out flying, are kind of April, May, June. Um, April, okay. there's still a ton of snow, so this would have been completely impossible. But that's when, like, the local pilots start flying around Anchorage and stuff because the days get really long. And so May and June, we knew we had to get it done by the end of June, and I was just concerned. I know 750K doesn't sound that far and it's not, um, but I was just concerned that I really wanted to get this done. Uh, I really wanted to not have to go back to Alaska in another year and try another traverse. Um, Because I kind of figured that once this was out of the bag and it was on the map, people would go try it. I don't think that that many people had been planning to fly across Alaska until I started spouting about it on social media and stuff. So um, I didn't want to get, I wanted to be the first to do it. That was really important to me because I'd put so much time and planning into doing it. So I basically wanted to give us the longest window we could. Um, It turns out that it wasn't a huge snow year, um, but it was a really bad spring. Probably the worst, you know, Kenny's been living up there for 25 years. He said he'd never seen weather that bad. So in the end, we got kind of unlucky. We had a bad May, um, but by about the middle of June, things went really good. I mean, had we started the thing about when the time when Dave had to leave, we could have finished the whole thing in 10 days.
1: What date was that then, June, beginning of
0: June? Yeah, I ended it in June 17th. The thing started getting really good about June 12th. Okay. (laughs) So we spent most of the time in pretty tough weather. Well, let's talk about that
1: because you got to Sled sled Pass, and then what did you do? You you were not yet at the north side. You still had to get to the north side. Yeah, we were still a long way. How
0: high is the Sled Pass? It wasn't very high. Uh, I want to say it was maybe twenty four hundred feet. Okay, but it's uh, covered in snow. T- totally covered in snow. Yeah, and and the mountains there, even the south facing aspect, like all the everything was completely covered in snow. So even if we had gotten a weather, like a good weather window, there wouldn't have been any thermals. There was no like collection zones. You know, it was all yeah. just glaciated.
1: Okay, so it's all guys. It's all white. You're punching holes five feet deep, climbing up this pass. And you get, I mean, it sounds to me like there was avalanche danger.
0: No, not really, because it was very late. I mean, it was all wet loose and that had all cut loose already. There hadn't been any new snow. No, we didn't really have to worry about that too much. Um, we did get tracked down pretty fast right at the top of sled pass by a grizzly. That was pretty interesting. He was that morning when we woke up in camp, there's this big grizzly going down river and uh, just like, Oh, there, hey, our first grizzly. That's cool. And then, uh, and then later that day. So we get up on the pass and we're actually following that same grizzly's footprints in the snow and this just seems completely unfair like we're post-holing through his footprints like how can a thousand pound animal stay on the surface I don't get it It was amazing I mean obviously big paws I mean some of the obvious stuff but just I cannot believe how fast they can move in terrain where we can barely move and at one point Dave turned around he's like holy shit man that grizzly's coming back the other way and he's just like trundling along at 100 times our speed we're like holy shit and so luckily dave had a gun i had bear spray so we pull out all our stuff and get ready for this you know attack because we're you know convinced that he's coming after us and he just walked right on by um but enormous speed oh like close enough that you can see it on the gopro but you know still a 100 feet you know like you know at at not a safe distance for a grizzly but you know we felt like oh you know we're Pretty safe. I don't know how safe we were. It was quite interesting. Later on, we got to the bear camp and the guy realized that, you know, Dave was, Dave is really knowledgeable about guns and outdoors and animals and everything else. And we, you know, we realized later on that I had a police, it wasn't even bear spray. It was like rape. It was like, oh. you know, the, the police spray was like a fogger. I mean, it, literally the bear would have gone, what? And then, and, and and he had a gun that, you know, basically he had to shove it right down the grizzly's throat to do any damage. It would have been hitting him like with a, like for you and I, like with a pellet gun. Um, but I mean, but he had a bit, he could have sprayed him with a lot of bullets. I mean, I think eventually he probably could have taken it down, but yeah, I'm not really sure we had that all dialed in. But anyway, we, we, you know, that we got over Sled Pass and the the funny exit from Sled Pass was that eventually we got to a place where it was a river instead of just walking on the snow. right at the river it was melted out and you should have seen how happy we were to walk in a river, in river for three right. hours i mean it was i, I that's where we both got pretty good foot damage. Uh, so you got foot damage
1: right at the beginning.
0: Right. Yeah. That was day two, three, day, three, day, three,
1: day three, day three.
0: Yeah, you're, you're right. Day three. And then that night, you know, after we'd walked in the river for three hours, which was glorious. I mean, we didn't, we both, our feet were numb. We didn't notice them. Um, it was just so much better to walk in a river than it was to walk on snow. But that night we were really hoping we'd get far enough over the past that we'd be back in the dirt. And we weren't, we were still in, you know, got right out of the river into the snow, camping in the snow, you know, no fire weren't able to dry out. That's probably where we both got a little bit of damage. But um, that, that's now fine I, I don't know that his feet were ever that, that bad mine, mine ended up you know weeks later I recognized that I had a pretty bad case of trench foot um, but it was fine for the whole trip I didn't it didn't bother me on the trip it's just really bad smell and my feet looked terrible but they didn't okay. they didn't actually hurt yeah and so, then the next day was was more hang on, hang on, okay, okay sorry sorry again the uh, where are
1: the film crew at this point uh, how are they filming it? so
0: they are being maneuvered around by Kenny in a small helicopter Copter.
1: Okay, so, so they're just going to meet you every week or something?
0: No, they more often than that. Like actually, once we got over Sled Pass, one of them was dropped off with the heli, and he walked with us for miles. Actually, a couple oh. days. Um, this guy Pablo Duran, he was actually in the Rockies Traverse too. He's a gazelle. He's done a bunch of film shoots with like Alex Honnold. He's a really, really. He, he's pretty. He's he's super fit, and he could keep up. And so it was often Dave and I, and this guy with with the cameras. Um, you know, for like the camp scenes and that kind of thing, most of the in-air time, that was very rarely we were with, you know, like the helicopter in the air. That was Like the Denali flight, we had the CineShip. When I call it the CineShip, that's the big helicopter with the CineFlex on it. Um, and they're following us either via the Delorme trackers or radio. Um, there was no cell coverage out there at all, at all but you, you could message them on the Delorme, on the in-reach, and then that would show them, they, they could look at then where you were.
1: Okay, so this, this sort of is is going to answer. It sort of answers my question, which is on trips like this, when there are two of you and you're isolated and you're together and you're forced through this uh, environment and these hardships, these hardships, uh, it can get quite uh, gritty between the two of you. But you had other people in there, uh, sort of mixing it up.
0: Yeah, at times. I mean, for the, you know, I would say for the large majority of this thing, it was just Dave and I, um, yeah. you know, they were, they were, they were with us at times, but that was pretty rare. It was pretty hard to get them with us. And then we had this really strict, we didn't really have any rules except that it was unsupported. Uh, and I'll talk about that more with the food cache thing. Like, you know, we put the food caches in advance with the idea that, you know, we didn't take, uh, a candy bar off the film crew like you know that right. you know they they weren't allowed to give us anything except batteries for our cameras we really felt like that was one area where um you know we we had to power our own instruments of course but when it came to like gopro batteries and cards and because dave and i were were tasked with doing a lot of the pov filming a lot of the filming on our own and so we felt like that was acceptable but when it came yeah. to like gear or shoes or food Foods. then we, we couldn't get any help now we did break that rule at heart mountain and so um whether that's in the film or not i just want to be really audio uh, really uh truthful with the audience that when we got to heart mountain um we got there with without any support we broke open our cash um it had eight days of food in it but we at that point, date When we got there, Dave and I were literally starving. And, and can I we can were, I
1: ask about yeah, that? yeah, right? sure. With these things, right? Nobody does these things, right? You're the first people to do it. You say, "Oh, I was worried about other people doing it," but you know, not a bunch. Of, a bunch of people are not going to go and do this. You know, some people might go and do it. Why does it matter whether or not you take a chocolate bar off the off the guy, or whether it's unsupported? And um, you know, where is the dignity? Why suffer? Well,
0: I think you know? I. I I think there's just a lot to style, and I, yeah. I it meant a lot to me that this was unsupported because when you have a film crew, the audience just a- assumes that that's what's happening, that they're helping these guys out, and so anytime I, you're I like real. quote unquote yeah exactly anytime you're quote unquote suffering, um, they don't buy it. They they don't you know they don't they're you know obviously clearly it's very hard. So like you said, what's the big deal? Um, but you know. I felt Will and I ended up taking quite a bit of strife on the on the Rockies Traverse because our rule there was that we couldn't make any forward progress unless we were in the air, which is absolutely what we did. Um, but we ended up taking quite a bit of critique uh, for leaving the project when the weather went terrible on us, when, when we were in a place where we were in a town, we were in, you know, and and he could go get work done and I could go get work done. And it was really clear that we weren't gonna be able to fly for a week. Mm -hmm. Um, So we left the project and came back to it and we came back to it exactly where we'd left it. Um, But people thought that was really bogus, that if it was a, you know, one journey that we should have stayed with the project, you know, come hither, thither uh, from beginning until end. And, you know, Will has kids and he has, you know, a very tumultuous life going on right now. And I had, you know, we just couldn't sit there for 35 days straight. So, um, you know, so I I think we completed it in perfect style. And I think that, um, but on this one, we just... We just went, okay, what, what is the, what is the purest way to do this trip? And that, you know, not everybody can come in here and have the luxury of having a film crew and having super cubs and helicopters, because we put this deal together with Red Bull. So, you know, for me, um, we discussed even not having food catches, like totally unsupported would be to go in there with rifles and hunt your way across Alaska. Um, and and we've already taken flack about that. Well, why didn't you just hunt, or why didn't you just collect? Well, the reason is, is because in May and June, the only thing available to you legally are bear, and you can't do that, you know, in an, any any kind of a responsible way. That's okay. that's yeah, like that, ecological. You know what I mean? It's crazy. So yeah, it's crazy. you can't live off so ground squirrels for thirty-seven I, days. <laughs> I suppose
1: my my question, really, I, I sort of understand the ethics of, of this type of thing, Because that you know that they, they come from cli- for example, in climbing and things like that. Uh, but, you know, that's been around 150, 200 years. With paragliding migrations and and, and and big distances and VolBiv, people have been doing it for 10, 15 years. Um, you can sort of – where do the ethics come from that you're inventing?
0: Yeah. I don't think there are any. I think that's there what's are, really – There aren't
1: any. That's you know, what's that's saying. what's
0: really cool. I think that's about VolBiv. I mean I think that this was just personally important to me, but – I think how anybody does it, you know, how Paul and Tom did it across the, you know, Europe, you know, a lot of people would say, well, wait a minute, they walked most of it. Well, who gives a shit? I mean, I, I just think, I don't think there are any rules. I, I think what's really cool about, you know, VolBiv is that people can do it in any interpretation they want. And if it's personally, if it means something to them, right on, that's awesome. You know, and this just to me, um, you know, I... I'm not a big hunter. I don't think we could have done that in a way that was mindful of Alaska. And in a way, I mean, how are we going to deal with a moose? There's no way to do it except to leave okay, a ton of let's moose stop behind. This so yeah, about yeah, animals, no, right? yeah, it's it, right. Ridiculous. It is totally Go. ridiculous. And so Go. I just, I just didn't want. I didn't feel good about the film crew giving us stuff. Um, okay, and fine. so yeah, I, I thought, and I thought the food cache was a really cool, also a really cool concept because we had no idea if it would work. And we had no idea if we were putting them in the right place. We had no idea if we had too much, too little. You know, we, I really like the whole part of um, figuring it out on the fly, and and I, I liked, I kind of liked going into it knowing that we were gonna for sure suffer. You know, suffering is important. I, I think that it really is important to to go through that. It makes you feel. Uh, it 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 reminds us of our humanity, and. Um, yeah. And we spent quite a bit of time starving. We were hungry and hunger's good. Yeah. You know, most of the world's hunger's hunger, good. you know, is hungry. We're so fortunate that I mean, we're paragliders. See Every single one of us that has a wing eats really well. You know, we don't, we don't have to suffer through hunger very, very much. And so I think that that's, I think it's important. Okay. Um, Dave, let's talk briefly about
1: Dave because um, I know that his background is in climbing and he's got insane records in big wall climbing didn't he spend 32 days on a wall in patagonia or something yeah yeah
0: Um, he's an animal he's an animal right
1: uh why is that why you chose him or is that why you asked him to do this because or did nobody else say yes
0: no, I actually, there was a couple of people that really wanted to do it. I, I, I talked to Paul Gushelbauer about doing it. We could talk about him. He was kind of our support Bush pilot on this thing. Um, I talked to Aaron Durgati, uh Mitch Riley, a, a good friend of mine, uh, who's a, an, another pilot here in the States. Um, A lot of it actually came down to, I don't, I didn't actually know any of those guys though very well. And I knew Dave actually probably the least of them all. You know, I I spent a tiny bit of time with him here flying one time in Sun Valley and then a tiny bit of time with him in the lead up to the X Alps. But, uh, and then one day we flew together a little bit actually in the race, but I didn't actually know Dave. I knew a lot about his reputation. Um, I just felt like you know of of all the guys you know he probably had the most experience in in terrain like this mm. and that clearly with his solo kind of big wall experience I felt like he probably had the head for the Misery that we expected. So I knew it was a good choice. Um, the one that, the thing that actually really put him over the top was not me. It was that he had done, he had worked with the real water guys, the guys that did all the filming on this project on a Dean Potter project a few years ago. And uh, the, man who, the man
1: is a base jumper.
0: Right? Yeah. The, you know, he, he died last year in that wingsuit accident, but a real famous, you know, slackline wingsuit climber guy. Um, and they had worked together on the man who could fly project a couple years ago. And real water just thought that Dave would be an awesome character. So it was um, it was part film, part knowing he's a badass, part knowing that he flies in the Sierras all summer, which I don't think anybody does. <laughs> um, yeah. He's just, he has a real high pain tolerance, uh, very talented pilot. Um, he's, you know, he only learned in like 2010 or maybe 2012. I mean, he hasn't been at it that long, but God, he's chasing it hard. And so I really felt like he'd be a good companion. And was he? Great. Yeah, fantastic. Um, we didn't, we, you know, it wasn't like it wasn't, it was, we we had drama between he and I. I'm not going to say it was perfect, um, but it was, he was just phenomenal, really optimistic, um, very you know, he can suffer hard, you know, on the days that we would just be suffering on endless hours, you know, he don't, then he starts singing or he starts rapping. He would, he would, uh, you know, he was really upbeat uh, for the most part all the way across. And so, um, I, I, you know, he's, he's really into having experiences. And so even the, the suffering side of the experience, he really enjoys that. Um, and so I think that, I, th- I think where we ran into trouble was just not a fault of either of ours in, in a lot of ways. It was that there weren't, there were so many decisions on, when I can compare it to the Rockies Traverse, like Will was just very clearly the leader. But we didn't have very many decisions to make because when the weather was good, we flew. When the weather was bad, we had to sit there. Um, on this one, there were just, this myriad of decisions every single day. Should we try to launch? Should we not try to launch? Should we try to walk? Should we not try to walk? Should we just conserve our energy and sit here for days until it goes good again? Like I... I re- ethically, I really didn't go up there to have a backpacking trip. I, I didn't want to walk across the Alaskan range. People have already done that. Not many, I think two, but um, I, I, I really wanted to fly it. And it made, you know, it was really clear early on that we were burning way more calories than we had in our bags. And so it became obvious that we were, we were not prepped in terms of calorie wise to do this thing. So I thought it was a lot smarter for us to just sit in our tent and wait. And mm. and you know and and he but and he would think that was smart for a while and then we'd get antsy and then we'd move. I mean, none of the tactics we really ever tried actually worked. We just had to kind of keep keep changing things on the fly. And I think the hard thing was that we're both, you know, kind of type A personalities. We're both kind of natural leaders anyway. And, uh, and we wouldn't see eye to eye and that was okay. And we were, we always called it a soft vote. Like, hey, well, here's, here's what I think I should do. Well, here's what I think we should, we should do, but it's a soft vote, which meant well, I don't care. Let's go your way or my way, you know, but I think just the weight of the decisions was really hard on both of us because, if you if you made the call and we ended up going your way and it sucked you just felt worse because it affected the other person and so i think that that started to wear us down um the other thing that i think started to wear dave down um and i think he and i would both laugh about this at this point but I, i sometimes am too will gad used to call me he called me the pathological optimist and and dave started to do that as well like I just always believed that this would work. And there were a lot of days where Dave was like this is bullshit. This isn't going to work. I don't want to try to fly across Denali. I want to walk. Like let's just get going. He really didn't want to sit there for 8 days and I really didn't want to walk across Denali. Like that to me was the big part of the trip was was giving it a sh- was giving it a go. Um I just didn't think okay, it'd be that respectful well, to walk across Alaska.
1: For sure. Well, let's go into that hut where you were for eight days how long did it take you to get there to the edge of the denali national park three weeks right
0: yeah it was about day you know it was like day 26 or 27 when we actually got four weeks yeah
1: and how many flights did you do in that four weeks
0: quite a few um we did a lot of hike and fly i wish i had my i've got a little notebook that i have this written down but um you know at that point we'd probably done about 25 flights um most of those were you know we had a couple that were twenty twenty five k most of them were up and downs, you know like six k eight k ten k little guys so it did work I mean it was working oh totally in in fact, getting to that cache at Hart Mountain, um we took off I think for me, it was the fourth flight of the day at like six thirty p m which sounds late, but in Alaska, that's actually quite early. But it didn't look good at all. It was one of these, again, I thought we were just going to have a sledder. And we flew like 20K and top landed at the cache, right where we put the cache in. I mean, it was the most perfect flight we'd had. It was easy. We were both at cloud base, screaming at one another. It was amazing. And then, you know, we landed, you know, hoping the next day was going to be the same. And we'd fly across Denali. And then we sat there in a snowstorm in our tents for eight days. It was just terrible weather. Um, so yeah, I mean, when it was on, it was proper on I and mean, you could really go
1: for it. So you're there, you land, so you've had this, you, you're 25 flights. There must've been a lot of river crossings. Did you have to fly across every river you came across? Could you ford across them? All that sort of
0: thing? No. In fact, it, it, until we got to the North Slope, we, we went across all of them by foot. Um, we, we, eventually we got to this river called the Cuscaquim and that was the river we were following to the North Slope. So now we're going North and the river flows North. Um, and that river just got, more and more and more massive until, you know, very early on, we would have never been able to get across that. So that kind of had us hemmed in. It's kind of hard to show you without the map. But um, the, you know, so and then once we got to the north slope, most of the rivers coming off the glaciers, you had to cross them at the glacier. So, so you, you had know, to hike
1: up to yeah. The snow line, yep. get across the glacier, yep. come back down, yep. or fly down, or yep. I mean a lot of this is forest, right? Where are you landing?
0: Yeah, and a lot a lot of it's tundra. And actually the, the there oh, were, right, you okay. could land a lot of places there. It wasn't, you know, until we got to the north slope, it was really forested and the landings were tricky. Um, once we got to the north slope, the landings were not tough. And neither were the launches, actually. You could hike up uh, and launch off snow in a lot of places. You could hike up I mean, a lot of the a lot of the places were just talus covered, you know. So They were a little bit sketchy for your lines, but they weren't terrible. Um, There were no trees. Uh, And then down low, it was mostly tundra. So you could either land on the edge of the river or you could just land in the tundra. Um, But you had to be really, you had to really, sus. you know, once we're in the park, you can't launch your land. You know, once, once we had that big flight across, so we passed four and and Ollie, we had this, you know, pretty good flight, but then the rest of the way, the other 45 miles we had to walk. And that at times were, you know, getting across the big glacier, the Muldrow Glacier was tough. Getting across some of the rivers were tough, um, especially for Dave, because he was, he landed more out in the flats that, that day. And well, let's it was go tough back for to him.
1: that. Um, you're in this place for a week, right? And it's, it's, it's not a hut. It's just, you're bivvying there in your little tents, yep, right? Yep. In a snowstorm. And it's a proper snowstorm.
0: Yeah, it was Eight proper. Days. I mean, every day was different. Every day was just totally unflyable. I mean, there were. They can were... you
1: describe what it looks like? Is it an alpine meadow? Is no, it it's above a. It, its line?
0: Yeah, it was. It's basically the, um, not Absolutely. the top of a mountain, but about midway up um, this place called Heart Mountain, and it just had this big flat area and we actually flew from there down to the bottom a couple times like once to go to a lake just hang out once to so he could fish he caught a bunch of fish one day and then we hiked him back up to the top and built a little fire and roasted the fish on a fire Um, but it was a really beautiful place like a great place to go hiking from or but we actually top landed right there we actually put the cash in there with a helicopter you know a month before um, marmots actually not marmots but ground squirrels have been munching on this box that we built but luckily they hadn't gotten into it um and it was you know like that just below us one day there were a couple bears um really gorgeous place but below the true alpine and way above treeline
1: so and you'd spotted this from where from Google Earth or from your yeah, initially,
0: or? initially Google Earth. So, you know, everything was done on Google Earth initially. And then when we got up there in early May, um, I did a lot of scouting flights. Sometimes Dave and I and Kenny and his Super Cub in the little plane. Um, sometimes just Kenny and I in the helicopter. If, usually it would just be Kenny and I if it was the helicopter because then you're a lot more concerned about f- fuel and wind mm. and cost and all that kind of thing. So we put them in with the heli because these were all places you couldn't land with the Super Cub. But we scouted it all in advance with the super cub and that's where we made a huge mistake is that you know when you're flying along super cub and you see these you know miles and miles and miles of snow you don't think it's actually going to go as slow <laughs> as it went and so you know we we ended up pulling we ended up not putting in uh, a food cache that we planned on putting in just thinking like oh come on we we're going to be able to cover that 40 miles much faster than that we don't even need that food cache and then, of course, we did. So mm. two things we've messed up, we didn't put enough food caches in and we didn't put nearly enough food in the food caches. Um, how many?
1: How many did you put in food caches? Uh, one, two, three, four, five. So every 150 K basically.
0: Yeah, but but not really, not really That totally okay. depended because then like Denali was 200 K. So we put one in the beginning and one after it. Okay. Um, and the two at the end were just put on the road. You know, because so, we had to cross these two roads at the end. And so those, there's no reason to put those in because then you got yeah. bears and marmots and everything trying to get in them. So those were just road. So on your,
1: your holiday, your fishing holiday that you were there for the week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're just hanging out in this beautiful place, watching the bears, the little catching the fish, doing top to bottoms. Um, but you're waiting for the perfect day, right, to fly this 200K. And occasionally the helicopter comes in and films you fishing and whatnot. But you, you were also resting there because you were starving, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, we, when we got to that cache, um, it's especially me, because that day, the day before, that we, when we when we actually flew to the cache, that morning we had a really pretty decent looking day and I bombed out. Um, Dave made it about another 3K further, uh, had this just horrendous alder bash, launched again got back with Dave, launched again, got closer to Dave, and then we had this beautiful flight in. I was just crushed, and he was pretty crushed. And we had – that day we ate – we each ate one packet of, you know, those you know uh, oatmeal packets that you – you know, you add hot water to, we'd mm-hmm. gotten some of those, at this bear camp, you know, like eight days before that, that's what we were both down to. We didn't even cook them. We just poured them into our mouth. They're 120 calories, those things. I mean, so that was, you know, it was like a six or 7,000 calorie day for me in terms of the vertical and the mileage that I did on the ground and then a, in a packet of oatmeal. Um, so okay. I just like really Lost a lot of weight at that point point, um and really – So you had to dealing... get to this cash. Oh, God. We were down to nothing.
1: What were you going to do? Because your final flight was 20K. You were just going to keep going, keep all bashing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah,
0: just get to that cash. But luckily we had this beautiful last flight. Top landed the cache, immediately broke into it. And it was so funny because the film crew were there. They had been, these two guys had been waiting there for eight days for us to arrive. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> they'd, just been, they'd been camping on their own, you know? And so they filmed us top landing there and they filmed us getting into the cache. And we were so excited. As you can imagine, we're just, we're starving. We're, we're imagining, like, we, I mean, obviously we were the ones that packed it, but we imagined that there was just this, plethora of jerky and cheese and all this beautiful stuff that we'd smartly left in there and we opened this thing up and we're like holy shit we could eat everything in here in one day and it was just it was actually we just went from like ecstasy to oh my god i mean i remember almost feeling like i wanted to cry i mean there was no chocolate there was no cheese the the all the beef jerky that we had imagined was actually in the next cache i mean it was like Base it was what maybe was it if, we, if we I oatmeal. mean yeah oatmeal, uh, gorp, uh, you know like a bunch of gorp, freeze yeah. you know some freeze dried meals, but it was basically five days worth of food, by, via the Rockies traverse kind of operation, oh. which is we weren't moving. Will and I weren't moving. We were flying, and uh, and so when we were packing all this stuff, Dave and I just radically like just radically underestimated. How much calories we would need? So we broke into this thing. And it's like, God, there's no candy, there's no calories here. There's no, there's no protein. There's just, you know, soup mixes, and uh, it just was all this really kind of empty calorie stuff. You know, Patagonia Provisions has these beautiful salmons and soup mixes. I mean, they're they're just delicious. But we really need. We needed like four pound blocks of cheeses, and, and we we just didn't have enough. So we made the call right then. Uh, that day, like, hey, this trip is over for us, unless it's perfect weather the next day, like in the next two days, it has to be perfect weather, because otherwise we're committing to flying into the park. If it's not perfect, we're going to land in the park and have to walk out and we, we can't, you know, then you, you cannot hunt in, in a national park. Yeah, yeah, you know, you so haven't they, you're, you haven't got food. And there's no, there are fish in the lakes, but there are no fish in the streams because at that time of year, it's all really silty coming off the glaciers. Right. So the, the salmon aren't up that high that time of year. So it was basically like, if we don't get a good a good day in the next two days, we have to accept help. We have to break our rule. And so we made a decision right there that, that the film crew had to give us a food drop. Um, and that meant, them packing up food at their end back at Kenny's house and and dropping it out of the plane, um, f- several days later. So that's what they did. So several days later, um, they airdropped us in a bunch of cardboard boxes that we could burn. Um, a bunch of food. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. Oh, but we disappointing we, well. we had to. It was disappointing. It, it was it was disappointing because, um, I mean we we had to break our rule and, and it was, you know, we really did want, we, you know, this was week, this was like day 31 or 32 when they dropped us the food, maybe 28, I can't remember. It was it was four weeks into the trip. Um, and we just felt like, God, we, we, we didn't want it to end, you know, and, and for me, it was worth breaking the rule in order to keep going. Um, I mean, I think people can probably hear this and go, ah, the, those wimps, you know, but the reality was at that point, I think in the beginning it would have been like ah just let us starve. Like that's what this is all about, drama and starving. But at that at that point, um I, I think both of us recognized that Alaska was really kicking our ass. Alaska was much bigger and harder and scarier than we either one of us had anticipated and we'd anticipated it being pretty bad. And so I think at that point we were like, OK, we need help. We're this is bigger than, than we are. We. I mean, the thing about being
1: unsupported is what happens if you'd broken an ankle? You would have called for support, right? I mean, there's, support, there's unsupported and there's unsupported. So, you know.
0: I, and that, and that and that's that's a good point. I think that's what it comes down to is that you know the the dream of it was more. We were never actually unsupported. That's the beautiful thing about having inreach. Is these days, is you hit the SOS button if something goes wrong. But I think like the X Alps, um, what the decision and we talked about this. What Dave and I talked about was that hey, if we are truly starving how can we fly paragliders safely? Like that that's just stupid. At at some point, at some point it's like, listen, this is just retarded. You're, you're actually literally putting your lives on the line in order, in order to salvage this somewhat strange ethic in the first place. So let's break the ethic. Let's survive. This is awesome. We don't want this to end because we're starving. This is just truly amazing. We're, we're still, we still got a long way to go. Let's eat. So how
1: far was that point from the beginning where you spent eight oh, days? Oh,
0: God. We were we – were, at that point, we were less than a quarter of the way.
1: <laughs> so you've done 250K.
0: Yeah. No, not even that. No. Even that, Hardly 2K. that. And we were, yeah, I, we were less than 100 miles into the thing. No, it's so just not we're, we're do, less than 25% it took in.
1: to do 180K. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. With,
1: with, with you climbing up the mountain, going through the post yeah. watching out for the bears, oh, going down, dude. landing at the bottom hiking up again through the olders
0: at one point we let, we got to this cabin this was the other thing that saved us so the other time in the, in the journey we were starving it was like after we'd gotten the first food cache four days later we barely made any ground just hiking and slogging and hiking and we got to this place called the Roan Cabin it's this cabin on the Iditarod and it's just stocked to the gills oh, with the, food Iditarod is what? that's the, uh, that's the uh, sled dog race really famous they call it like you know, along with the X-OPS one of the hardest races on earth but it's a sled dog solo sled dog race from south to north from uh anchorage to Nome, alaska that they do in that's the winter our
1: Klondike stuff isn't it yeah, yeah.
0: exactly yeah and, and one of the stops on the race because the dogs obviously need food and rest on one of the stops is this is this roan cabin and so it's a it's a uh, it's it's not in a park or anything but it's a cabin that's maintained by the forest service the u.s forest service and People when they go there and they, they and it's it's free it's part of our taxpayer thing you can stay there we didn't have any idea that it was there we you know on our maps it just showed cabins but we didn't have any idea that anything was there so you know Dave and I like lurch out of the forest this one day and there's this roan this cabin it's this beautiful cabin with a stove and a fireplace and and it's stocked with food I mean like it has peanut butter and chocolate and coffee mm-hmm. I mean we were we were totally out of food yeah cuz when people go there and then they leave during the iditarod they just leave their food so it's got okay. this big cabinet that's all this food's locked up. So the mice and stuff can't get in it. So we're saved. I mean, it literally, it saved. We, we were done. The expedition. We're, we're now, we're like 50 miles away still from the second food cache. And we're already starving. Like we've already run out of food from the first food cache. Like we, we've got no chance. We're just like, we're hopeless at this point. So we get to this c- cabin. It saves us. So we eat like crazy for two days. We just sit there in the rain, eat and eat and eat as much as we possibly can. And then we just stuff our bags full of food and, carry on. And we're like, Oh, we got, the, we're, we're we, we've we got this. Now we can definitely get to the next food cache. Well, the next food cache we be starving the next time. Like we just, we just totally underestimated the food. We should have way more caches, but like two days after we left this cabin, we post up again, we decide, okay, we've got the wrong strategy here. We're just going to wait for good weather. The walking is not working. So we're just going to wait for good weather. So we wait in our tents again and all these nasty storms for like four days, On the fifth day, it's bright and sunny. It's beautiful, but strong, strong headwind. We launch, and Ed, we fly one kilometer. (laughs) We're on the ground. And then we back to this whole, like, good God. We just waited for four days. We didn't cover any ground. We've been eating food. Not a lot, because we're just sitting there, but we're still eating food. And now we're going to, you know, now we got to start the hike and fly. So it was like everything, it just didn't work. (laughs) It was just like everything we tried just didn't work.
1: I think it's better to go into a hut and use the peanut butter than it is to shoot a bear and eat the bear
0: yeah ethics you, wise you, ethics, know? you can't No, you can't deal with a bear you just can't you can't deal no. with that much meat you can't you can't do it no. ethically no, no way no. absolutely no. not we never even considered that even if we were starving i mean there's we weren't going to shoot a big animal that's that's no. not right we're not set up for that
1: okay so after a week you take off on you have a the weather comes good what well, what was the decision-making process when, after eight days, you'd been there eating a fish and having a food drop, and you decided to go, and it was day thirty-two, and you were you still had five six hundred kilometers to. Go?
0: Yeah, that was really that was really pinned down to Dave. Um, he had to he had to leave no later than I think the seventeenth of June. Uh, he had another project to go to in Europe, and so at that point, I, you know, I think we had. 11 days left or 12 days left. And, you know, knowing that we might not get this miracle flight across Denali um, and we might land You know, 10 miles into the flight or 50 miles into the flight or something short of the 200K, um, you know, we were gonna have to walk out. And so he was starting to get pretty nervous about, you know, getting to a road in time. There's only, we were, that's the road we were trying to get to, is this 200K across. Um, if he didn't get to that, then, you know, you can't come in and helicopter somebody out of a national park unless it's an emergency. So, there is no escape except on foot, um, unless it's, unless it's a, you know, a physical emergency. And so, uh, you know, he he basically that day was that he had to go. Um, and we very much wanted to make this flight together. We didn't want to do it independently. If it was up to me, we would have made it two days, you know, two two more days for better weather cuz that day turned out to be pretty marginal, but luckily he kicked us off the hill cuz he was like, "Dude, we got to give this a try. We can't just keep sitting here." And I wanted to keep sitting there, but he he wanted to give it a try and he was right. Um we we I just looked like the worst day possible, but you know, we flew 10k, we got a little zero, we got a little climb and it turned into a flight that we could make i flew in a cloud for 20 minutes don't let anybody li- i'm sorry listeners don't do that don't repeat after me but do it, it was it was just you know we needed i needed the height um and uh i was willing to risk that to keep going and uh the footage of that's pretty amusing i promise and and uh and you know it, but it, it it ended up turning into you know, it was a hard, really hard flying, not necessarily totally scary, but just really hard flying, kind of zipping around these rainstorms and stuff. And we made, you know, we made something out of it. So it ended up working out really well. I was really glad that he kicked us off the hill. But you went different ways, right? Yeah. And that was just really, we decided before we launched, we had this rule that no matter what, we stay together, you know, just safety wise. And that day when we got at to launch, she was like, Hey man, what do you say we fly on our own? we fly on our own today. And, uh, and I was like, yep, absolutely. Um, I'm with you. Let's just, you know, let's, let's go, uh, you know, if we get separated, so be it like, let's fly our day. This is our big day. This is our chance. This is Denali. And if somebody bombs out, the other person doesn't have to go be with them and, and share in the misery. So basically it was just like, Hey, if you bomb out, you're on your own. Um, And we just decided that that was worth it for that, for a chance at that flight. Obviously the hope would be to just stay together. So we stayed together really well for about 20 K and then I missed a climb and had to really just struggle on this, uh, in this place, kind of waiting for another cycle to come through. He got out, he got like 10, 15 K ahead of me and he wisely followed this, uh, cloud street that was kind of pushing out into the flats And by the time I got the climb, and that was actually when I stuffed into the cloud, um, when I came out of the cloud, uh, I was very much in the terrain, and my line looked better at that point. His line got pretty shaded out, pretty rained out. And then
1: you're on the ground, but you're 10, 15 miles apart. Uh, Can you talk to each other?
0: Yeah, well, that, that's where I just got to put a shout out to the in-reach is The Delorms were—I mean, we could not have done this expedition without those things. Just having that two-way texting uh, was brilliant. So as soon as I landed, you know, of course, we weren't radio shot at that point. So as soon as so I just landed,
1: quickly, quickly explain what a Delorm is.
0: Yeah, Delorms a two-way tracking satellite tracking device. They're kind of like a spot device, but way better in my opinion. And uh, it's basically you just Bluetooth it to your phone, and it it, it, it puts down a, a like thumb uh, like uh, crumb. Of you know, so the outside world, if they have internet, can see where you are. Um, but you can also message Delorme to Delorme two way. So if you know if you're not in cell range, you can message the like like you would with a cell phone. You can just text message phone. one another. Uh, And so he and I, and the the beautiful thing about it, especially if you have maps downloaded in advance, you know, when you still have internet. So before we took off on this thing, we downloaded the maps. And, you know, if he sends me a message, bang, I can click on the message and see exactly where he is in relation to me. So as soon as I land, I send him a message. "Hey, Hey, Dave, I landed, I'm safe where are you? He sends me a message, bang. Instantly we know where one another are and we text back and forth a bunch of times. Okay, what's the plan? What do you think we should do? Where do you think we should go? Hey, let's head for Anderson Pass, which for me was 15 miles away and for him was maybe 30 miles away. I'll meet you there in a couple days. Have fun. And, you know, okay. and, and, in that, and, and in that time, we would, you know, we were texting each other constantly over those next two days. But we basically met a couple days later at Anderson Pass and, you know, regrouped the night before and spent the night on this, this beautiful place below the pass and then up and over the pass the next day and out of the park. That sounds like it worked perfectly. It worked great. No, it was it was just fantastic. Yeah, we both had you know when we linked back up, we both had tons of stories to tell about you know bears and river crossings and glacier crossings and um, being it's exhausted. It's like the
1: and- biggest adventure in the world. It's amazing. So you, you're there. You're out of the park. Um, you've crossed the national park. Is this at the point? Is you're now on the road or? or- is this where uh dave leaves
0: yeah so we we got to the road i think it's called the glenn highway this is one of the main roads that separates the alaska range uh that goes what, to Denali. Ask,
1: what is it like getting stepping onto a road after you've just been through all that
0: as you can imagine it's terrible uh it's it's just take well for me it was i think especially terrible maybe more so than dave because for him he, he had really gotten his head around like that that was going to be the end for him and knowing that he had to leave and you know, I was really sorry to see him go, and obviously a little bit nervous about carrying on alone. But we had just had an amazing adventure, and so I think for him it was like, you know, psyched to go see the girlfriend and go home, and you know that he was done. For me, it was really jarring. It was really loud and wrong, and just too much humanity. I, I wasn't done. My head was very much still in it. I, I never even thought about quitting at that point because for me it would have been quitting he had to leave but for me it would have been like okay well it's i you know i didn't have a reason that to be done other than you know i didn't i had the time and and i was still healthy and so uh i i really wanted to carry on and that that was it was kind of like ending it at the end, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but it it just sucks. It, you're, you're in it and you're, you're all in. And, and I mean, you you haven't talked to anybody other than your partner. Um, you haven't seen anything other than wilderness. And there's suddenly all these RVs and tourists and noise. And
1: yeah. So how long, was, how long did that last?
0: Uh, not very long. So he left. Um, I walked down the road, got a pizza at this little place, Got back up to a bivvy point, got my cash, which was now for two people, which was extraordinarily wonderful. Um, and that, you know, so I just carried, you know, I basically had 10 days of food from that point. I had tons of food. And I, I'd always thought on bivy trips, you couldn't carry more than about five days of food. That's totally wrong. I can carry a lot of food. <laughs> uh, and so I I just I took our, the cash for both of us uh, and got up to this really nice bivy place. And then that night it snowed on me. And I left all my gear there, and I walked back down to this little village that was on the road, and stayed there for four days and just ate and ate. I just ate pizza and ice cream and pizza and ice cream and coffee cake and eggs and I, just, I ate. And it was really stormy, really bad weather, so I couldn't go anywhere. So I just ate like a banshee. And uh, when the weather looked like it was going to get a little bit better, I went back up to my stuff and uh, and carried on. And Did then you have it was when you were down there. Oh yeah, many beers, many many, many beers, <laughs> yeah, so I basically just took myself actually kind of out of it and uh and and re recovered and i didn't yeah. actually re i didn 't realize how destroyed I was. I was pretty mangled, my feet were really mangled, um, my clothes were shredded uh my you know i did wonderful things like the laundry uh i didn't realize how bad i smelled um yeah. you know you forget all you don't notice all these things when you're in the field uh and then yeah when it when it went better that that my first flight out of there was was probably the most terrifying of my life even including the X alps um and th- but then the next day after that the weather got really good it was strong I don't, I don't, why was flight. it most terrifying I just forced my way out of there. Cloud base was below the peak tops. Uh, It was really windy, very cross. Actually, kind of over the back from where I was trying to launch from. But I was just sick of being pinned down. I'd spent that night back in the tent, um, and I just really wanted to get going.
1: So you're you're in rotor basically when you take yeah. I basically took off the rotor. Yeah, into cloud.
0: No, the cloud was kind of orographic, and I was pretty, I was okay. pretty much able to stay below that. Um, but I basically got blown over two ranges. Uh, you know, it's one main range, but I was kind of flying, trying to fly the north side, and I ended up on the south side. Um, and, and that was kind of interesting because it was really cloudy on the north. By the time I got blown over the second ridge into the sunny side, Um, it was incredibly thermic. It went from just being kind of like ridge soaring rotor to being incredibly thermic in the middle of the day, but really windy. And I just kind of posted up into the wind in, in a Venturi and eventually got down to the ground. Um, just pr- pretty terrifying, just too, way too windy. I shouldn't have been in the air. Um, it landed you next to this little lake. And like oh that. yeah, major. It was just SIV basically all the way to the ground. Um, and, but it got me out of this really bad place that I was in. I didn't really realize I was in it until I got out of it. Um, and then, uh, it allowed me to kind of regroup. And now the walking is just, ter- it's just nothing but tundra. Um, really easy launches. I'm convinced this is the place to do the Alaska record, and uh, you know you can fly from here all the way across the rest of the range on a good day. Um, you know, the next day I hiked up to launch and waited Aaron, for. You think you going which way? Going back? Going the way, or- No, <laughs> going the way I I, we, I ended up going. You know, okay, flying yeah. west to east, um, but. The, the, you know, the next day I, I hiked up to launch. You know, just beautiful camp, and I'm all alone. And really enjoying the solitude. It, the trip got really good for me after Dave left, and that's not. I'm not saying that in any way about Dave. It's just like I was talking about in the beginning. It was just the decision making got so easy. It's like being back in the ups where you're just your decisions only affect you. Um, Mm. and, uh, and so it was just very freeing that my decisions weren't affecting somebody else and vice versa. And the weather got good. It got sunny, it got warm, um, no more snowstorms. I hiked up to launch the next morning and it was quite strong and over the back. And I just sat there for 10 hours waiting for it to get better. Um, and then had a really nice, you know, 30 mile flight, um, it, at 9 p.m., it's, it's just crazy. Like the time that you can fly up there, and like I said, it never gets dark, and uh, it's just brilliant flying. It wasn't hard, it wasn't sketchy, it wasn't windy. It was just you know, once the wind backed down, it was like having this glass off in Alaska at midnight. It was just crazy, like it absurd
1: beauty. And what are you flying across? Describe the terrain where you are now.
0: Um, at that point, I was I was in. To me, I mean, this sounds weird, but to me, it was the most beautiful terrain of the whole thing. I mean, flying across Denali and Forker is just, whoa. You know, the day we flew across, there's like six lenticular uh, sitting on top of Denali and just wild and big. But this was, once you get across that road, the Glen Highway, from there all the way to Mentasta Lake, um, you know, Mount Hayes and Mount Deborah, uh, even the Alaskans don't know that terrain everybody I talked to when I was up there like I for some reason people don't go out there and it's just sustained big like all the all the most of the flying we've been doing was like six to eight thousand feet it was quite low and out there it was all all the peaks are kind of 11 to thirteen thousand and and they're just you know like seven thousand foot walls of ice I, I've never seen that anywhere just these wow. it just big in a different way, not big like Denali in terms of tall, but just, just, they just felt really remote that, that next day when I had that evening flight, you know, it was just light, super late in the day. The thermals are all dying, just these glorious mountains all around. And I, I came down to this area and there's this huge glacier in front of me and I, I've got to have height to get over it. And I'm kind of thinking like,, oh, maybe I should just top land, wait for tomorrow. Ooh, maybe I can get enough height, but I like I did not want to land on this thing. It's just filled with lakes and moraines and big rivers. and I, I really want to fly across this glacier. and this this beautiful this golden eagle comes out of a tree. And just catch this little wispy thermal. And I get wingtip to wingtip with this golden eagle and dial up. You know, it's like a 0.3 climb. But I've got all the time in the world, you know, I'm not racing. And I, I, I climb up with this eagle, you know, just a few hundred meters. And I figure, oh, I've definitely got the height. And, you know, I go off on glide across this glacier and fly across the glacier and topland in this huge kind of meadow, but still quite high, looking out at the Susitna River drainage. And I you, you feel like and you are the only human being there i mean like it's like looking across france you know wow. and you're the only person i mean it's just huge yeah, it was magnificent i took some pictures of the tent there they're just like really there's nobody out here where are the where are the people and uh so that that part of it that stretch was really just interesting because even the Alaskans, you know, I mean, clearly people yeah, go yeah. in there, but, you know, it, I mean, it's not totally unknown. You know, the backcountry skiing there must be just wicked. But um, I think Denali is, the, you know, people go to Denali because it's Denali. and this Denali, this area, it's the honeypot, yeah. yeah. it's the honeypot. And this, that part of it really for me was the honeypot because it was just, you just feel like you're on your own. That's fantastic.
1: Um, you talk about the flying wingtip to wingtip with the golden eagle there. I mean – what other wildlife were you seeing in this particular stretch?
0: Oh, man, that part was really neat. Um, so a lot of bald and gold eagles, uh, wolverine, moose, uh, lots of little, you know, all kinds of little stuff, uh, you know, ground squirrels and marmots, and um, saw, saw, God, almost a dozen bears in that stretch. Um are they all grizzly bears? No, oh, black, black bears, that. too. Actually, black more black thing. bears in that zone, um, but mostly grizzly bears. Uh, actually, Dave and I saw most of the grizzlies from the air. You know, you get really low, and, oh, wait, hey, there's a grizzly and a couple cubs. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but just, like, again, the flying there was, I, I guess, what I loved so much about the paragliding I mean, at the, in the end, I think over 70% of the route was flown, which was pretty remarkable considering in the beginning, but... Um, it was just so interesting like that and at the end, the last stretch um, I was often flying out away from the mountains. Like the mountains would have no clouds on them cause they were all being wind blown. And then, so it was like dumping over from the North over the tops of these mountains down into the Valley. And then that was triggering, triggering, um, you know, Cumi's popping more kind of out in the flats, like out over the right. rivers and out over this tundra where, you know, it's not Brown. It wouldn't be like a collection zone, but just It was just so cool navigating terrain that you didn't have any idea, you know, where the launches, where the landings. It was all just, everything about it was experimental. And that was really neat. I, I loved that aspect of it. it was just not knowing anything about how it would, would work. Like one night um, I had this, I've I, I landed like the third flight of the day. And I, I kind of screwed up and i and I landed down in the bottom of this valley, but it was only like 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. and it was clearly still very on. Like I'd screwed up. So I did an x alps move. I just ran up this little, like a molehill compared to the mountains around me. And literally, I mean, I had like maybe 200 meters below the valley bottom. I mean, I gave this a 0% chance other than just, it was kind of windy at that point. I, I thought, well, I'll be able to launch and maybe I'll just be able to kind of like circle down the valley and get 5K. But that's better than walking 5K. And, you know, I I'd launch off and I get out in this kind of zero. It wasn't really a climb. I fly over like a herd of caribou. Which, that was really cool. And then beep, 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 you know, and just I'm kind of frisbeeing, 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 frisbeeing. And then bang, I'm up to 15,000 feet and then a five meter climb and fly, you know, I had a, what was actually one of the biggest flights of the trip. You know, it wow. just, just. Easy flying, it cloud base, and I mean higher than I'd ever been, higher than the Denali flight by far. Um, just cruising along. I, I don't know. I don't even know how to describe it. But just looking at this terrain below you—that is, yeah. You, you see weird things like that would happen. And, you know. Hey,
1: you almost sound lost for words. Totally,
0: totally. That's why I can't write about this. I don't know what to say. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, Sorry, it's,
1: I, Gavin. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't know um, what to say. This is amazing. So this all happened in the last week. Yeah, that was the the, the last four. When I left the last the, the uh, that last camp, it was four days to get to the end, and that was almost almost forty five percent of the route
1: of the whole thing. You just said that you you flew three days, but you took off on that one particular flight. Let's go back to that. You took off at six o'clock. You got up to fifteen thousand feet. How far did you fly on that flight? Um.
0: Yeah, God, I wrote all these down. It was about three hours. Um,
1: so 60, 70
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the next day was a really vicious walk uh, across the, uh, across, I can't remember the name of that glacier. There were so many glaciers in that zone. But I, I got to this river that was like class three and 10 feet deep. There was no way I could get across the river. So I, I ended up walking about 10 miles upstream. Finally got to the glacier, was able to get across on this kind of like snow bridge. Um, and then did a little punchy flight across another river that was literally like less than 10 seconds just flew across a river hiked back up and then i got a really proper good big flight and that was basically to the end no no sorry one more one more small flight landed and then the big flight all the way to the end and that was actually the biggest flight of the whole trip and, and again these are not big flights but that one was like 65 or 70 miles or something
1: um so it's 100k yeah about
0: 100k and uh
1: and at what time of day like in the middle of the day yeah that one K. that
0: one was that one I maybe took off that last one i maybe took off at about 2 p.m. got up to cloud base didn't think i had enough height farted around forever, ended up back down at the launch. I didn't land, but, you know, I lost all the height, got back up, and then it was proper on. Um, you know, because often things wouldn't really... Solar noon up there is 2 p.m., I guess, just in terms of how the time zones work. And so often it wasn't really on till quite a bit later in the day. Um, and then, you know, that flight was maybe 3 p.m. to I think I landed at 7.30 or 8 p.m. that night. And that was at the proper... That was really funny, actually. I landed just off off the shores of Mentasta Lake, which was goal. That was the end. Uh, and from the, from the air, I came in really high and from the air, I could see this like baseball diamond and what looked like a hotel across the street. <laughs> so I thought, Oh my God, this is amazing. I'm going to land in the baseball diamond. I'm gonna pack up my stuff and I'm going to go and have like <laughs> 10 beers. And, uh, and so I landed in this baseball diamond. Well, the baseball diamond hadn't been used in 10 years. It was just dilapidated, falling apart. And I walked across the street, and it wasn't a hotel. It was like a apartment complex for native Alaskans. It was a really sad, really, really sad scene, um, you know, like the stories you've heard about. And uh, this was not a hotel. <laughs> and so – and and but one of the guys came out, and he said, oh, well, there is a lodge on the other side of the lake. And, I mean, you, as you can imagine, I am – dying for beer like I'm, i just want beer more than anything else in the world and so I, I i pay this guy to take me around to the other side of the lake and the lodge hasn't been open for four years no way. <laughs> it's, and they don't sell beer it's a little gas station and they don't sell beer and i was just like oh god darn it so this
1: is this is the thing about these trips is they just end and then you're back in in society yeah yeah and dealing with stuff
0: and i think Um, i don't want to give it away because i did write that you know you you know i just wrote that about in the column but that was that was the interesting thing i'll let people read that rather than talk about it now but yeah the coming i really thought i was ready for coming back into coming back into it all you know after 37 days but i wasn't
1: and when did you meet um
0: your team so this was interesting. They So they all left uh, when Dave left. Uh, everybody went home. Uh, well, Paul Gushelbauer, everybody. The no, Guschelbauer no. was still up there, but he, he was no longer, I mean, there was no reason to, he was only supporting the film crew, not us. So there was no reason for him to be around. So uh, Dave flew out that day, uh, his last day in the Super Cub with Kenny and Paul, and then the film crew drove back and they, they left. Um, and then at that point, Red Bull. So
1: they didn't get any of this stuff. The the flying stuff at the end in the that was in all the back. POV. That's,
0: that's all, all just that's, yours. All, that's all GoPro. So yeah, and what? So what happened there was, um, and this is actually I think going to play out really cool in the film. But uh, they left, went back to Seattle. They all left um, because Red Bull pulled the plug at that point. They were they said they weren't going to put another penny into it. They wanted Denali getting across Denali. They wanted that to be the end of the film, and wow. I refused to leave. I mean they wanted me to leave with Dave, and I refused to leave, I was like, Wait a minute, I'm not done. I want to keep going and uh, And Brian Smith, the guy that runs real water was was said to real to Red Bull like, Wait a minute, this is Gavin's thing. he's not done. We can't give up on him.' But yeah, okay, budget's gone. We'll go home. And what they did was, so that last day as I was in the air, I used my Delorme to text Brian in the air and said, hey, I'm going to make it. Get back up here. So they jumped on a plane that night, flew back to Alaska, got in at 3 o'clock in the morning, drove all night to get to me. I was in this campground. Um, And then we went back to where I finished, um, you know, and they they filmed me, you know, just packing up and we we kind of recreated that, but filmed me packing up and then four days later went back in and uh, it just did some kind of cool areas with the Cineflex and did some kind of cool stuff like some of the zones that I'd flown over. But, you know, not not faking it, but just, you know, just to get some of that other footage. But most of, most of the end, the cool thing about the end was that I was truly alone all the rest of the way. And that, um and then I shot all that, just, just GoPro POV. So I think that'll, I think that it'll actually end up being kind of a fun part of the film. We'll see. Um. And where did you spend that night? You bivied
1: again, or you, you found your hotel or lodge? In
0: the oh, yeah, no, that was so funny. So I this lodge that wasn't a lodge in the gas station. Um, you know, I I asked them, well, hey, where can I put up my tent? And they just refused to let me put it up like in the behind their house. And all it was was this, this highway and there was like a ditch on each side and really thick trees. So I, was, I, I actually set up in the ditch and I thought, this is way too depressing. I can't go 37 days in Alaska and sit up a, set up in a ditch on the side of a road. So I packed my stuff back up again, stuck out my thumb. And, uh, and eventually, there wasn't much traffic, but eventually this girl came by and picked me up, and she knew of a campground that was like 30 miles down the road, and this was hysterical. So, this girl, 30 years old, had three kids. She'd lived in Alaska her entire life, and we're driving down this road, and she's got this, you know, like, 36 case you know 36 can thing of beer in between us so i'm pretty excited about that unfortunately she'd had quite a few herself which is kind of the way in alaska everybody's got guns and booze in the car and uh and we're driving down the road and there's this massive mountain you know out in the distance that's covered in ice huge and i didn't know which one it was so uh you know this is out in the Rangels. and so i'm like hey what 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 mountain is that and she's like oh well that's denali <laughs> and i'm like um no that, that's not Denali. I just flew across the Alaskan Range. Unless I'm really bass-ackwards here, that is not Denali. That's got to be something else. She said, well, I've lived here my whole life. <laughs> and that's Denali. And I kept thinking, oh, my God, you've got three kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's lived at the base of this mountain. She, doesn't, she thinks it's Denali her whole life. So, yeah, so anyway, it was quite a comical drive. And she dropped me off at this uh, really beautiful little campground. And I had a couple beers, and then sat there for quite a few hours, wondering what I'd just done. Basically. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, like I said, I I uh, I went through. Yeah, it was a, it was an interesting evening. It was one of these kind of like where you go from being incredibly grateful to like what does it mean and mm, what's next yeah, yeah yeah go home yeah yeah exactly go home go to the beach basically yeah right exactly yeah. <laughs> go surfing <laughs> for the weekend <laughs> yeah exactly
1: exactly um, gavin that's that is amazing it is really amazing it just sounds amazing i don't even think we've really touch the surface because there's a whole there's like days out there that we don't know about but listen i'm just going to call it there and say we've been talking now for two hours and uh thank you very much
0: well thank you i I, that went a little longer than we planned yeah but i i I enjoyed that ed hopefully you've helped me get my uh get my head around this a little bit before we uh end i I, i've got to put out a thank you um those 37 days i was getting weather again via these delormes i was getting weather reports from a good friend of mine Stuart midwinter who helped us out with the rockies traverse as well and then my uh my team member bruce marks was sending us weather and another local guy pete Puppetor. um thank you guys i really appreciate it it was nice to have some contact with the outside world <laughs> well, and actually,
1: uh let's let's talk about that you know we'll do this uh extra little bit for the ones to, keep, to want to keep listening um, tell us about the gear that you were
0: using actually the, for we weather or all. just just everything well
1: uh, talk about the flying gear first well actually what was on your feet that's what I want to know yeah I had
0: this uh, really nice pair of Calevas, uh the Firetail Evo, Evos uh, the mids um Really cool shoe, Gore Tex, very lightweight. Uh, it worked great. I mean, the Gore Tex waterproof side for both Dave and I that doesn't work in Alaska. There's no such thing as, as waterproof. Um, I did put up a blog post about this. You know, rather than going into the whole thing, people can check that out on cloudbasedmam.com. But um, the the interesting thing that we both forgot that was really stupid. I think we both really did pretty well in terms of what we had. You know, you want. You want just what you need, nothing you don't. Um, but the, we both didn't bring gators. That okay. was pretty stupid, not having gators. So we both spent a lot of time with very, very wet feet. But, uh, yeah, Dave was on the LM6. I was on the Climber P, the new Niveak wing. Uh, terrific The wing. what? Sorry? The... the Climber P. It's their new the... kind of x alp slash hike-and-fly wing, um, kind of low-end D uh, really terrific wing. Um, three and liner. Then three liner. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I was on the Sup Air Delight, which I loved. I'd never used the Supair Delight until this trip, which, uh, you know, you take the, the the padding out of it, the button and back pad and had just the right amount of space for, as you can imagine, a lot of stuff um yeah so the the gear we we trashed our gear we were doing repairs almost every day it was we really beat the hell out of it but you don't really have space for spares so i was gonna say did you snap a line or anything or yeah he snapped some lines i don't think i snapped a line um but we both we both had you know proper you know wing and line and just basic repair kits which we used a lot uh, we ended up, you know, finding a coffee can one along the way somewhere from an old hunting camp, and repaired one of my carbon poles. And I, Dave was like an Indian in a past life. That dude can fix anything. was it he? Yeah. yeah, he was really good at that stuff. Um,
1: and I suppose just to round it off more fully, um, it's how long have you been out back in civilization now? I uh, exactly a month. Yeah, exactly a month. Yeah, and, uh, here's a question. When you come back, obviously there's this sort of disconnect, and you, I've heard, read stuff you've written before about you know coming back into society. And actually, John Sylvester wrote a really good piece in Cross Country Magazine uh, about flying in India and coming and coming back from the Himalaya and coming back into the civilization, where there are people and roads and all this sort of stuff. Um, what do you think? What do you think about what you see having been out there in the wild, wingtip? to wingtip with golden eagles, herds of caribou, bears everywhere. And then you come back to 21st century Western civilization.
0: Yeah. Well, you bring up John Sylvester. I have to give him credit for starting all this madness. You know, he was the first person I did a bivvy with. He and I flew from, from beer. This was 2011 over to Manali and top landed and spent the night and flew back the next day. And that was the first time I kind of went, Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, what a, what an amazing guy. Um, yeah, I always struggle with that. I've done it a lot. Um, I, I think the thing that, you know, I mostly came away with certainly something like the Alaska thing is hope, you know, I mean that, that there are places that are still that wild, um, make me feel a lot better about where we are, um, as a race you know that, that we've still got a chance i think and that mm. that's that makes me very hopeful that places like that still exist and um you know it is quite sad to see how fast the glaciers are disappearing and you know all the data on that i'm not a scientist so i won't make a comment about that but um you know I, I but i think the other thing is that it just makes me realize how important to have wild places there is it makes you feel a part of nature it makes you feel like we've got a place in it and that when i come home and have the conveniences of grocery stores and um, the love of your you know friends and significant others and all that kind of thing it makes all that stuff just so much more precious doesn't it And it makes you just more appreciative of all that and i think for me uh, that's why i love paragliding so much is because it's the only thing i do where I can't do anything else, and I've written about that a million times, so I won't talk about that more. But I, um, you know, even more so than climbing, kayaking, and skiing, all those kind of things, you can still be distracted doing that stuff. And I think that, um, you know, being so committed to something like Alaska just makes um, the day-to-day life, which I guess is the real life, um, for me, more interesting. Um, more, I'm more appreciative of it because it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I know the one thing I loved about Alaska, maybe more than anything else is the simplicity of that kind of living. You know, you, you wake up, you eat and your job is to stay alive and look around and enjoy life and eat and sleep. And that's it. Mm. I mean, there's nothing really else, you know, don't break an ankle, don't get hurt, don't be an idiot. Um, but it's really, it's just so easy where you know, I, when you come back, it's you're you're just overwhelmed with the possibilities and the need to do stuff. And I guess I realize when I'm out in Alaska, we don't need to do shit. We, we just don't need to do it. We don't need to be so wrapped up in all the to do's, but that's what I'm wrapped hmm. up in now is all the to do's. So I, yeah, it's that I I'm, I'll always grapple with that. We all, we all do, I guess.
1: Cool. Um, I suppose very finally, what's next on the agenda, if you have one? Got the X-Alps next
0: year. Yeah, I don't have anything big r- big right now planned other than the X-Alps. Uh, I'll get into the kind of the physical, the really physical end of, the, end of things with that October 1st. So that's when the hardcore training starts uh, with Ben you know this whole year i've been kind of on a maintenance program if if you will so yeah uh the next one's the x-alps i don't have any you know i really wanted to be home this summer and and spend some time flying here as you know we live in a pretty cool place for big flying so um yeah i'm just enjoying being home excellent cool well welcome home thank you Ed. appreciate it god thank you for your time man i know you're really busy i'm really honored (laughs) i'm to be
1: honored but yeah no it's been a really really good uh conversation thank you very much
0: thank you and well, i hope i hope i get to see you before the next x alps but otherwise i'll see you when we're you're chasing us around next year i hope <laughs> that was awesome see you there Cheers all right on. buddy thanks ed <music> i hope you enjoyed that pretty cool to sit down with ed and talk about alaska i think he really did help me get my head around that so hopefully i will be able to get an article out. I think Dave and I are going to work on that together, get an article out about the Traverse. Uh, the film is being edited right now. Those guys, Real Water Productions, Mad Skills, that was probably the most impossible place on earth to film a paragliding expedition, but those guys dug in deep and they stayed with us for the full 37 days. Um, really excited to see this film. I think you'll... I, it's, fraction of the footage I've seen is just mind-blowing so uh, they're trying to get that out for Banff the world premiere at Banff uh, this November so if you can come say hi you want to check out an amazing festival I highly recommend coming to Banff it's a lot of fun all we ask for as always is a buck a show if you got something out of this one or one of the previous episodes or if you're just discovering the podcast highly recommend you go back and listen to people who uh, know a lot more than I do Guys like Jockey Sanderson and Bruce Goldsmith and Nick Grease and Jeff Shapiro and uh, had some really good talks with some of the other x pilots, uh, Tom Dorledo, Paul Gushelbauer, uh, Andre Prashaska. Check those out. A lot of knowledge there. Many, many, many years. Uh, some really great stuff. I think you'll enjoy it. You can find the link for the donations and the podcast on the website, cloudbasedmayhem.com. You can also find us on Google Play. Uh, iTunes, on Stitcher. If you can't find us, just shoot me an email and I'll hook you up. Thanks for listening. See you on the next show. Cheers.